Everybody, welcome to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. As usual, I am your co-host Kyle Bird, and with me, uh, I have um, your other co-host. Hi, I'm Matt. Uh, w- <laughs> welcome, welcome back to to podcast land, Matt. Been a minute. Uh, it has to- been a minute. It has been a minute. Uh, we got an action-packed uh, show tonight, so uh, let's not um, put off introducing our guest hosts. Um, we have uh, f- our frequent uh, guest host, uh, Kevin Derendorf. Um, I mean, I-, I think everyone knows you by now. <laughs> but if they, if they listen. Yes. But you can find Kevin with the, the, his Mazer Patrol blog and his book, Kaiju for Hipsters. Uh, one of the entries in that book we will be discussing today. And we have our uh, second guest host, um, who is also no stranger uh, to joining us on the podcast. We have uh, Justin Mullis. Yay! Welcome back, hey. sir. Glad to be back. So, so where where can the people find you these days? You 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 you're. Uh, I feel like you've bounced around a little bit with, with different blogs and things. Right now, yeah. So I know in the past you guys have have mentioned the blog that I had, uh, Man Creates Dinosaurs. I have ended up more or less, I think, abandoning that at this point. I will probably try to repurpose the material from it at some point in the future. But right now, where most of my writing shows up is over at um, AIPT, or Adventures in Poor Taste. I mainly do book reviews for them, uh, but every once in a while, I, uh, I, I you know, do an article as well. So uh, if people want to uh, find some of my writing and that kind of stuff. That's the best place right now. All right. And um, for those who don't know, you um, you are, uh, you know, into religious studies and myths and all that. So anyone that's aware, you know, familiar with the title that we'll be talking about, um, that is where you are going to lend us a lot of assistance because uh, I, I don't know none of that stuff. <laughs> um all right, well, let's get the party started. I guess um, the quickest thing we can breeze through is uh, um, a little bit of news. Um, uh, I don't think anything too crazy at the moment, but um, uh, if we head into the MonsterVerse, um, I guess we, we know that... 
the upcoming untitled MonsterVerse movie directed by Adam Wingard and starring Dan Stevens. Um, Toho has confirmed that Godzilla will appear. I don't know how, you know, I don't know how big that news is. <laughs> um, we've seen a lot of, uh, you know, insider scraps of information that um, seem to be more pointing towards this being a Kong movie. So I don't know if it's going to just be like, you know, Godzilla having a, a small role or maybe show up in a flashback or or maybe Godzilla is in a big role. Who knows? I don't know. But um, I don't know. Is that really something that is an interesting discussion point for anybody here? The only thing I would think is that uh, with this being Godzilla's 70th anniversary, um, I, I wonder if there's still the... Uh, stipulation in place that Legendary and Toho can't be working on something with Godzilla at the same time as one another. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I mean, we've also been hearing rumblings from the Japanese end as well, so, I don't know, I would kind of expect Toho to want to do something special in Japan for the anniversary. Um so I don't know. I my own prediction, based on information that we've talked about here, most of the most of it anyway, is this is probably going to be a more Kong centric movie. Maybe Godzilla will show up in some sort of like flashback or, um, you know, something like that. Maybe he comes and helps save the day or whatever, and then. There's the Apple series that will feature some Godzilla as well, and then the the big Godzilla thing, you know, Godzilla's big return to the screen will probably be like a Japanese film for uh, for the anniversary. I could be completely wrong, but I don't know. That's that's my projection here. Sounds uh, sounds quite plausible. Thank you for the validation, Kevin. Um, <laughs> uh, Justin and Matt are very silent, so I'm assuming they don't find this interesting at all and uh, would like to move on to the next thing. Uh, another quick one. Um, Kurt Russell and his son Wyatt have officially signed on for the Apple MonsterVerse television series, and um, that we we'd heard rumors based on not really any hard evidence that we you know kind of dismiss because website some websites will just run with any rumor they hear. A lot of the times they won't come true. Sometimes they do. So it's not really something we talked about. But uh, I don't know. I mean that sh I'm not sure what to expect from that show. So I can't say I'm like super excited but you know having kurt russell and and wyatt i like wyatt too but you know i mean having them involved in a godzilla project is pretty neat i'm sure you know i mean legendary has has had a habit of casting like amazing actors and kind of just having them do nothing so again I, i'm not sure how you know i'm not sure how much i i should be jumping up and down but you know I, I won't turn down, uh, you know, the Russells and a, a kaiju thing. Unless it's Madison Russell. No more, please. 
Um, all right. So that's our very uninteresting news briefing. Um, so let's get into some real, uh, discussion here. Um, before we talk about the movie, which is the magic serpent, by the way, I am, I always feel weird announcing it because people see the podcast title. Um, (laughs) they know what they're, they know what we're going to talk about. Yeah. But. Uh, before we get into that, um, we just wrapped up another G-Fest in Chicago. Um, of the four of us, Kevin and I were the only ones there. Um, so, you know, we, we can, I guess, discuss um, the weekend. Uh, it, was, it was a little strange, um, just because, A, there was a brand new hotel, um, there's all kinds of behind-the-scenes shenanigans. Uh, I mean, ever since we thought there was going to be a G-Fest 2020, there's been behind-the-scenes shenanigans with, you know, JD using the G-Fest Twitter for wild uh, posts, you know, regarding COVID. And, you know, uh, we'll just say, you know, he is not uh, someone who... Um, uh, agrees with vaccinations. <laughs> um, so he, so to add to kind of the strangeness, he wasn't there this year. This is the first year he's never been there because he, he did not want to get vaccinated to get over the Canadian border. So needless to say that it, it, the feeling it was very weird, especially at first, um, as the weekend went on and, you know, we started to mingle with other, uh, familiar faces. I mean, it started to kind of just feel like any normal G fest. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a few things Kevin and I can talk about as far as, you know, interesting happenings over the weekend. Um, Kevin, what do you, uh, what, what, what do we want to start this with? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess we could just start with the hotel itself, which was, um, in, in my opinion, uh, an upgrade in terms yeah. of like, it doesn't have a pool. I think that was the main, yeah, uh, no, your daughter. it's an upgrade except there's no pool. And then there's no like kind of designated like hangout space, like how at the old hotel, there's like that outdoor patio everyone congregates on. But, um, I mean, me and Kevin hung around a little bit, uh, you know, after hours, um, a lot on Sunday, but, uh, you know, I mean, we kind of walked around on Saturday and like, there are like places you can hang out, but I, I think people were probably just more dispersed because, you know, there's not like that designated little area. Yeah. If you, if you want to smoke, there's not a place for that. Yeah. But, you, you yeah. have to just go to like the entrance of the building. There's a, like a tiny little smoking area, but it's not like what we used to have, um, so aside from those two things, I mean, it, yeah, the hotel otherwise was an upgrade in every way. Oh, except for a, a third thing is the in-house channel. Um, apparently, it's because some AV equipment at the hotel. I'm not too savvy on that stuff, but like, for whatever reason, they they just could not um, broadcast anything on the in-house channel. Like it was everything was in black and white. The sound was like super low like you have to turn the tv like all the way up to even hear it and like i said everything's black and white so i don't know i don't know i i have been led to believe that it's uh, a hotel issue with 
whatever kind of AV stuff they have available. So, um, I don't know, that was kind of a bummer. I, I mean, but that's, I don't know, that's not as big of a thing just because, I don't know, I never really, like, had it on unless I was, like, falling asleep to it. But, you know, it's more of a, an atmospheric thing, <laughs> you know, just liking to have that on in the background. I had a, a little bit of trouble with some of the projectors for my panels um, in that they weren't uh, able to broadcast at the same resolution that my uh, that my laptop was outputting, but uh, eventually we got it figured out. So yeah, but, I know you were having video issues on, uh, I think that was Saturday. Yeah, um, Saturday. Because like, you wanted I, to play I, some clips and stuff. Yeah, if, if I'd known that that was what was going on, I would have tried to, to make the appropriate adjustment, but... Uh, Unfortunately, in the heat of the moment, uh, just kind of had to make that executive decision. Okay, I guess we just won't play video clips right now because troubleshooting in front of a live audience is not interesting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we've seen that happen the hard way for for people before. Um, it's better to just, you know, like just say screw it and power through. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean. Um, it it was a little there there were less panels this year maybe like half as much because they only had two rooms to do panels as opposed to three at the at the the previous shows sometimes four because they used to use the dojo studios room as uh like another panel space so i don't know what you know i don't know what the inner workings are um i don't know if there was just not as many people interested in doing panels, which that might be the case, because, like, if you look at the program, like, all the panels, like, if if Kevin, Nathan Marchand, and um, Kevin Horn, if the three of those guys were not there this year, that's, like, most of the panels <laughs> That was, like, 95% coverage, I think, yeah. from what I... Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure what the, I'm not sure if it was just a lack of volunteers for panels or or what, but uh, I'd like more panels and panelists uh, <laughs> next time. So um, it, the the hotel is huge, though. Again, I don't know the inner workings of what they were contracted to use space wise or whatever, but um, there are other rooms in the G area that G Fest was in that you know. You know, I'm not sure if they could rent out another room if there are is more panels. I don't know. That's something that um, uh, made the weekend a little bit less um, busy. Is is uh, is just there just wasn't as much to go to. Um, uh, but I don't know. I I mean, the big, the the biggest. If you want to compare, the biggest one to compare it to as far as differences would be the 2019 one that all four of us were at. And between the film festival, you know, the guests, um, uh, panels, uh, movie showings, like it, it was like you wake up early in the morning and it, it was, it re it's really like rushed from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. And you got to kind of play mental, like, uh, you got to like kind of have like a mental tournament of events like you know you're going to have to be like okay well uh, I don't want to miss this but I'm going to have to there really wasn't much of that this year which 
I think I'd prefer it to be like busier because it's like, okay, we're pretty much on vacation. We want to get the most out of it. But I will admit there was something kind of nice about just kind of like being able to like just kind of do your own thing and not have such a hard set schedule, like action packed schedule to like, I don't know. There, there was like a, a a little bit of like breathing space there that I kind of liked. I don't know. Um, Was that a, was that a segue? Oh yeah. Yeah. A little bit. We can use that as a segue. Um, and yes, obviously, um, COVID was another thing that had kind of changed. I mean, it's changed the world, but, um, well, it, it was definitely something in the, in the front of our minds also. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty cautious about COVID and take my caution and multiply it by like 200 and you have Kevin who's like, very like you know if there's like a one percent chance you know he he kind of like doesn't want to like be there so um so that kevin was a little more reclusive which you know i get but uh we we did get to hang out a lot but but yeah the since coming back to no one's surprise you know a lot of people on facebook and stuff coming back from g-fest saying like hey i got it you know um I mean, I can't say I'm surprised. I mean, me and Kevin wore masks all weekend, pretty much. Um, But, you know, just the amount of people there that, you know, weren't, and a lot of people just being packed into a space, you know, uh, from all over the the country. I mean, not it sucks, but not surprised at all. Yeah, and, you know, even even people that were masked up the whole time, if they were in the dealer's room for hours and hours and hours a day, uh, or, you know, they have, I, I know several that have, uh, have tested positive, uh, since then. And that's, <clears throat> that's a real shame. Um, and for a convention that's the size of that it is, uh, I don't know where people were getting this number, but people kept saying 5,500 this year. I don't um, know about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of it could just be <clears throat> the, I mean, unless you're there, like, there's really no way to really talk about how huge this hotel is. I mean, the, the floor space, like, there were, there were, it, it wasn't just G-Fest on and off throughout that weekend. There were other events, like, occupying, like, the same amount of space at the other end. Um, so, because it's that spacious, I don't know if maybe, you know, mentally it's kind of like playing games with me but it did not seem like there were 55 i mean i don't know that number just doesn't it i mean it seemed like it was about as busy as it usually is honestly i might even say a little bit less but again we're not as you know we're 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 in a much more spaced out area but I don't know. I would be very surprised if that was true. Yeah, and uh, it's a very... I think there's a shift in the demographics. I saw a lot more... um, You know, there's always a lot of people there with their kids. um, Mm -hmm, But I think a lot of first-time people this year, especially, uh, who might not... You know, they might have shown up for one day and then then taken off again, Mm -hmm. as opposed to um, kind of the the dyed in the wool fanatics that we normally hang out with that, uh, would be around all weekend. 
Yeah, and and uh, that's another thing is like that is that's also like three years of people saying people not only finding out about the convention but saying like, oh, I really want to go, I really want to go, and you know, I mean that 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 people have gotten had three years to find out about it and three years to be like, oh, finally I get to go. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, I don't know if maybe there were the 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 pre-registrations were insane numbers, but I mean even within like my own Facebook wall and like our own friend groups and stuff, there like there's a ton of people that had to drop out like um Matt here had to drop out cuz he got COVID. Um there were other people that had to drop out cuz of family emergencies. Like there the reasons are Timing was not on people's side this year because there, there, there's been a lot of people I know that couldn't ended up not going because of like things that were completely outside their control. Yeah, um, I mean, two of the panels that I was on, I was not originally supposed to be on, um, but just <laughs> due happenstance, uh, somebody dropped and they needed somebody to fill in, and I was there. So, um, Kevin, how including, including you the guest there? interview. So, yeah. How many panels did you end up doing? I did six. Jeez. I remember we, me and Bird did two one year, and I was like, this is exhausting. I don't know. <laughs> I've never done. agreed to more than one. Matt did two one Oh, year. I did two. That's right. Yeah, I've done I've done two. One uh, guy two I was talking to, I don't know who it was. I, I talked to several of the presenters. One of them had eight. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean. That's a lot of work. I want to enjoy enjoy the G Festivus if I go. And like you said, we were going to go, and then the week before, my wife started feeling bad, tested positive yeah. that Saturday before G Fest, and I got it. Yep. So Landon was going to go for the first time, and uh, we had to bail. Yep. Yeah, I mean oh. the, the timing. People, so many people that I know canceled because of either they got COVID or something like just something unexpected. Um, so I don't know. I mean, um, but uh, I, so so just it felt a little more quaint because of those reasons. Um, also, you know, the guests, uh, I forget the, the guy's name. There was a, a modeler from Japan that was supposed to be here. Um, Kevin, do you remember that guy's name? Uh, not off the top of my head. Well, anyway, he was the first guest to pull out, um, but he that was a while ago. And then Don Fry... Um, had to pull out last minute because of a medical thing where he's he had to be hospitalized and I think have some kind of surgery or something. Um, I personally am not too broken up about that um, just because his last appearance at the convention was kind of disastrous. Um, well, uh, Kawase pulled out and then pulled back in. Yeah, was, Ka- Kawase, um, what's his first name? Uh, Hiroyuki? Yeah, okay. Hiroyuki Kawase, who was uh, the kid in um, Hedera and Megalon, he, he had to pull out because um, he's a pilot for Japan Airlines, which he's actually been doing a very long time, it, it, it turns out. Um, he had to pull out, and then uh, because of something with Japan Airlines, some kind of something with his job and traveling and all that. And then he was re added last minute. And then, uh, of course, we also had Tomoko Ai, who was uh, Katsura and Terror of Mechagodzilla. Um, she was uh, 
there previously in 2014, and she was back this year. Um, and, you know, those were the two guests. And uh, no offense to them. I, they were both great. Um, they both were into being there and everything. But, you know, they're not really powerhouse draws. I mean, 2019, we had Takarada and Kaneko. They are not uh, that kind of draw. <laughs> I'll just say that, with all due respect to them. Um, so, you know, they aren't like big marquee guests. That, you, know, the, you know, before that we had Satsuma and Bin Furuya and so on and so forth. They're, so the guests this year, they're cool and everything, but they aren't like, dang, I gotta go to this, you know, kind of guests. Um, so everything, uh, despite the, 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 the actual convention space being really big, um, the convention itself felt a little smaller. Um, but still, though, I mean, I had a really good time. I mean, I took my family, you know, as always. We, we did some, a lot of stuff downtown, and I, I caught up with some friends that uh, live in Chicago as well as, as well as my G-Fest friends, you know. So, I mean, I've never been to a... All the crappy behind-the-scenes drama of it all aside, I mean... I've never been to a G-Fest that I didn't have a good time at. And, you know, I plan on being back next year. Um, uh, speaking of the guests, um, both of them were translated by Amanda, who um, people that uh, have caught our little um, uh, virtual cons, the Kaiju Masterclass, over the last couple years. She, she's done a lot of translating for us, and she's awesome. Um, and then, yeah, Kevin uh, had to fill in on the Tomoko Eye interview. Um, and, uh, yeah, Kevin, why don't you talk a little bit about that experience? You did was, really well. Oh, thank you. That was, um, you know, the, the questions I were uh, come up with the night before because it was a very sort of spur-of-the-moment thing. But um, uh, uh, I herself seemed to be like, oh, this this guy knows what he's talking about, so I felt very vindicated. Uh, um, that was that was really exciting because you know, uh, Terror Mechagodzilla is the first Japanese movie I ever saw, so um, you know, kind of kind of had a uh, the the nervous jitters for that. But um, she was she was lovely, um, and you know, we kind of talked about uh, her Tokusatsu career. Um, anybody. You know, I, I'm aware that she had time at Nikatsu, but I was not going to bring that up if she didn't want to bring it up. So. Yeah. Well, also, like, I mean, she she kind of gave a little rundown of her career trajectory, and she did not mention any of the pink films, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of a cue, like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe she maybe it's best to just not talk about it. But, uh, yeah. I mean, having been there, I, I, Justin, you, Justin was there in 2014 as well. Um, so having been there though, I mean, you did a good job of asking, you know, questions that are not stuff that she gets asked a lot. You avoided the the question. I mean, she's done interviews. People can look them up online. Uh, you, you did a good job of avoiding most of that. Um, it's probably the most anyone's asked her about Ultraman Leo maybe ever, you know, at least in English. Yeah. I mean, that's such a bizarre program. Like, 
uh, and and it's accessible now, so people are going to know what we're talking about. Yeah, we talk about it. So, um, I, I thought uh, good to uh, good to bring that up. And um, for people listening, from what I understand, you are working on getting that up on on your YouTube channel, right? Uh, yeah, that one will probably be up as a as a audio podcast um, because we didn't get video to go along with it. Um, I've got a recording. It um, it's got a little bit of microphone feedback in it, so our good friend uh, Chris Marty is is taking a look to see if uh, if it can be made any uh, any clearer. God and, bless uh, that man. He 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 deals with a lot of our shenanigans and like is okay with it <laughs> yeah my my other panels are you know when it's just me or uh, myself and, and chris eaton or whatever like whatever like i'll just put it up in, in bad audio quality on on youtube but you know this for the respect that i have for that actress i, I want to make this yeah. uh make it sound good yeah yeah and and i mean that's the kind of thing that once it's out there can like live on you know if people are doing their own research i mean it's right there so yeah, you want it to be good. Um, your other panels were good though too. I mean, um, you know, you always you did a, a one about um, the links between tokusatsu and wrestling. Um, you did one about uh, obscure uh, figures, um, you know, obscure monsters that have toys and collectibles, and um, uh. You did a little more off the cuff one with uh, Richard Pusateri on the Godzilla nineteen. Uh, I, I I I mean I in my head I call it Godzilla nineteen fifty six now because King of the Monsters to me is like <laughs> the legendary movie, but the the American version of Godzilla fifty four, and um, you did a, a, a one about Asian dinosaur films which I I was not able to attend, but um, uh, I mean you know your 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 stuff is always very thorough and. Um, I, I speak for everyone in saying that uh, your exhaustiveness is 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 like that's like becoming one of the things you're known for is being really exhaustive and detailed, and that's uh, I mean I say that as a compliment. So, uh, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing various people's um actually on the on the YouTube. <laughs> <comments>. <laughs> um, so keep an eye on uh, the Mazer Patrol YouTube uh, for those uh, panels, and keep an eye on the Mazer Patrol podcast channel um, uh, for the Tomoko Eye interview. Um, Kawase, uh, uh, which you did not interview, but you know your wife uh, uh, Amanda translated um, brilliantly as always. Um, I mean, that was a fun interview, and I, I definitely liked him, but uh, as kind of expected when you're asking him about acting roles that he did between, what, the ages of 3 and 11, I mean, he was cool, but a lot of his stuff was like, I don't, like, I don't remember. Um, Mostly his answers were variations on, uh, I was cold, I wanted to see my friends and go to school. Yeah, yeah, like they're very like surface memories. Like, what do you what do you remember about filming Godzilla vs. Hedera? And it's just like the thing I really remember is filming in the mountains because it was freezing. Um, so it, it was stuff like that. It was and, and it was a lot of like, well, do you remember what this person's like or that person's? Like, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I'm 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 a, I, I assume like the actress in Hedera. He was asked about her, and he was like, uh. 
I'm assuming we probably just complained about the cold the whole time, <laughs> like stuff like that. Um, yeah, what was what was funny about that interview though was like, uh, you know, Ed Godzicheski was interviewing him, and he was like. You know, I mean, as a kid, you're, you you were cast in Godzilla and um, Return of Ultraman and and things like that. Like, you know, I mean, that's that had to have been like super exciting, right, for a kid to be cast in like this these kaiju things. And he was like, "Nah, I wasn't really into kaiju. Like, I you know, I really just wanted to like go to school and study and <clears throat> and I liked hanging out with my friends and like I." Same thing with Ultraman. He's like, I didn't really care about Godzilla. I didn't really care about Ultraman. Like, my parents just wanted me to act, and so I was acting. Um, uh, you know, th- there was some stuff here and there that 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 he'd remembered a little better. Like, um, his first role was uh, Dodeskaden, the Kurosawa movie, and he he basically said like, yeah, Kurosawa was a dick to everyone but the kids, like all the adults, like. <laughs> were afraid you know he was saying like he remembers one time like a, a staff guy or something like walked over a like a marked part of the ground that like he wasn't supposed to be on and like kurosawa flipped his shit um uh i forget what what was the the kevin do you remember offhand the movie that he did with um nakadai what's uh was that um Okinawa? No, but that was another one he didn't really have much. Um, or uh, or the, um, let's see, what what else did they talk about? They talked about the Guardman. Uh, they talked about the commercial for the horse or something. <laughs> Maybe it was the, the Battle of Okinawa. Horse. I don't know. Um, but I but like that was another one where like he didn't really have much memory of the filming, but um, he was like. Uh, yeah, Tatsuya Nakada used to take me out bowling a lot, and that was awesome. And um, I forget which actor. One of the actors in Godzilla vs. Hedera. I think the guy that played his uh, older brother. I could be wrong, though. Um, he was saying, like, yeah, he had a sports car, and, like, the coolest thing about filming that was, like, getting ride, like, you know, taking rides in that other actor's car. And, I mean, he just really, like, wasn't... And now he... And, and he's, like... But then I stopped acting because I just wanted to go to school and hang out with my friends. And then I've been a pilot for the last like several decades, and that's my life. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, he wasn't super like, oh, you know, I was so excited to be in Godzilla. He was like, you know, as a kid, he was just like, I don't. As a kid who did, like didn't care about that stuff, he was like, I just want to like, I don't like acting. I want to hang out with my friends. Um. There was a during the 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 audience Q and A was a little bizarre because instead of actually doing a Q and A, the first guy that raised his hand is like, "I have all the Ballmark figures from the Hedera movie." Uh, me and Kevin were in the front row, so we got to see this like up close, up close. Um, and so he, this guy, like goes and he he gets like a table from like the corner of the hotel, flips it upside down. And like makes this little ramp from the stage, and he's like, "I want, I want you to recreate your scene from Godzilla versus Hedera, where where you shove the toys down the slide." And uh, he was just like, "I what?" <laughs> and so, so like this guy like brings him these old uh, vintage figures, and he's like, "Yeah, now push them down like it's a slide," and like 
I don't know if maybe Kawase hasn't seen the movie in a long time, but he really kind of didn't seem like he knew what he was doing or why everyone was like so happy he was doing it. But of course, but you know, then of course after that ordeal, you know, there's no time for any questions. So I don't know. That was, that was a bizarre, that was very strange. I don't know. Kevin, how did you, how did you feel about that? Wait, so the guy guy that asked the question actually is also the one who like flipped the table. Yeah. It's all the one guy. And then by the time that was done, it's like no one else had any chance to ask anything. Huh? All right. I mean, it was it was a good photo op, I guess. Um, the yeah, I don't th- I don't know if he had watched the movie in a while because um, generally speaking, the guests don't stay for the things at the Pickwick. They kind of duck their head in, make an intro, and and then leave. Um, this, this year, it might have been more brief intros than than usual, just because they didn't turn off the, the advertisements as the guests were making their opening remarks. So he just had like commercials for general movie theater nonsense going on in the background. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very possible that he just has not seen the movie in a while. Like he, he remembered because I had asked about the scene with the toys, you know, that he had those toys and that, you know, the staff, at the at Toho basically handed him toys and were like, here, play with these. But, um, <laughs> but he, he was not, you know, and excited or enthused to actually have these toys to play with at the time either, because he was a very professional, uh, little boy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think he, he ended up like being like, okay, people like that I'm doing this. So I think he was like happy that people were, he was making them happy, but I don't, I think especially when he was, like, being asked, I really don't think he knew what the hell was going on. Um, anyway, that was a very, that's, I mean, that was a very strange, I don't know. I feel like there's, a, there's better scenes that he could maybe, like, if you're going to ask him to do something, like, I don't know, that, that was really strange. And also probably what, what, a little what bit are you going to ask, what are you going to ask him to do? It's like, here's a knife, stab this head <laughs> <laughs> that's I mean, i'm sure there might have been a little bit of a culture shock because I, I don't think japanese are used to like that sort of like outgoingness mm-hmm. <laughs> that americans have um but yeah as kevin said you know uh the i don't know what was going on with the pick the only i went to the pickwick for sea monster on thursday um, which was the first time I'd seen a movie there in ages, and I, I was also, like, two minutes late, but, I, I mean, they didn't have anyone to intro anything or whatever, but, yeah, I know Kevin was saying, like, they drove uh, Tomoko up to do her Terror of Mechagodzilla intro, and, like, the whole time there was just, like, co- like, when you go to the movies and there's, like, commercials playing before the movie, like, they they just, like, kept those on while she was talking. That's... Yeah, I- and then she, and then she was just like, okay, let's like leave. <laughs> and then they just packed into the car and left. Um, but it's also that's late at night for a Japanese guest. It was a ten thirty movie screening. Like, yeah, there's yeah. jet lag. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That's yeah. That time difference is no joke. Um, uh, film festival was not as action packed as it was in 2019 when there was like, all kinds of premieres and stuff. Um, like there was a lot of stuff that, uh, we'd seen cause it's come out already. Like, you know, there was a day that was just SRS, uh, films 
programming. Um, and then, uh, you know, some other movies here and there, a couple of Asylum movies, all stuff that's been out. Um, and, like, you know, I, when I, I tend to look for the stuff that, like, hasn't been shown. Um, a lot of, like, you know, as, as every year, there's a couple fan films thrown in there. Um, so the only really, the only thing I went to was a, uh, a block of short films that played on Sunday. Um, and uh, Kevin has since checked a few of these out. Um, so uh, we can talk about them um, ever so briefly. Um, the first one was The Green Giant of Zanzuki, which I believe is an American one. I don't know. Kevin, did you, uh, catch up with this one at all? Uh, I saw part of it. Uh, it's, yeah, it, I, I, I think it's American. It's, it's very much, you know, um, the, what you see in a lot of um, American fan films is like the very blatantly cardboard buildings. And, yeah. And, um, and like kind of dub dubbing over dialogue. Yeah. Bad like dubbing, that. cardboard buildings, um, you know, visible strings, uh, on, you know, planes and stuff. Um, I don't know the, the, there's, there's a pretty decent monster suit, but other than that, I mean, it really, you know, uh, unfortunately it, it, it's really a lot of the same tropes that we see out of a lot of American kaiju parody. Um, so I wasn't super, uh, taken with that one. Um, it's, a, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't too pumped about that. Uh um there were some other ones that were um pretty decent though. Uh there was <clears throat> uh let's see. I'll just go in order of how they showed them. Um after that they showed uh the new short film from Kazuhiro Nakagawa uh which was called Great Actress Reiko Inoue. Inoue? Um, that one, uh, is basically, so Kazuhiro Nakagawa, he directed Day of the Kaiju and, um, a bunch of, like, little small Godzilla projects, uh, like, he did the 2020, um, Godzilla Fest short, uh, he also did the Godzilla Fest short for 2021, which was the Godzilla vs. Hetero one, um, he did some Ultraman Z episodes and, um, you know, different... Stuff for uh, Godzilla theme park rides at Universal Japan. Um, he was an assistant on Shin Godzilla. Yep, assistant director on Shin Godzilla as well. Um, I like his stuff. Um, so this was a clever little short about like uh, this uh, A-list actress who is like you know a seasoned superstar. Um, you know, kind of kind of stuck up and high maintenance. And, uh, you know, she's expecting to come and shoot this kind of old school tokusatsu, uh, kaiju movie that it, it basically King Kong almost, I mean, just think King Kong is like a giant gorilla and, um, she gets to the set and, you know, because she's so old school, she's like very disappointed that everything is a green screen and, um, I don't know, Kevin, <laughs> is it just me or did that feel like it was almost designed as like an advertisement for like whatever software they were using. Uh, I, I, that didn't occur to me, but I could kind of see it in that it's very much kind of to, to show that you can win over somebody with, uh, you know, I think of like Ian McKellen breaking down on, um, 
the Lord of the Rings set because it's all green screen everywhere. But oh, if you had your your iPad out and you could show them pre visualization of like, okay, well, here's what what everything's going to look like when it's done, and then you know you can set his imagination in in into overdrive. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, basically, like she's. Um well, I can't act without seeing the monster. And then the guy whips out an iPad, and he's like, well, on this program here, you can see it, see? And then she's like, well, I can't, you know, uh, act without knowing what the monster sounds like. So then, you know, he plays the monster's roar. And then she, he, basically just that keeps recycling, and, and, and you know, they're, they're, they do some funny uh, gags with that. Um, you know, I, I need to see the storyboards first. He pulls up the storyboards and so on and so forth. And um, And, you know, it's like, how how they're able to win over this this woman with modern filmmaking uh, techniques, but uh, I don't know. That was I, I I thought it was a really clever little short. Whether I I mean, if it's not designed to sell some kind of uh, post production software, I mean, it might as well. <laughs> but uh, I liked it a lot. What about you? Yeah, that one was a that one was a lot of fun because you kind of got. Um, you know, it's it's nice and short. It's not. It doesn't overstay its welcome, but it, it gives you enough of the the characterization. You know, like when this actress walks in, like she has a whole entourage, including somebody that's like spraying perfume in front of her as she's walking in and uh, and waving her with fans and stuff like that. Uh, and, and you know, when the director is introduced, it's like this director. Here are his credits, and it has like four things. And then the actress here are her credits, and it pulls up like a whole screenful. So. Yeah, and uh, when when her bio came up on the screen, uh, like her age, it said NA. Yes. Yeah. Um, that was so. Yeah. No, I I enjoyed that one. Um, after that, we had one called Kaiju Girl. I am not familiar with the director Takafumi Sakabe. I don't. I do not know who that is. Um, uh, but that was a neat one about. Um, these schoolgirls who uh, have a friend who is obsessed with building kaiju suits and models, and um, that is happening as there is a real kaiju attack. Um, uh, so, like, um, there's an actual monster that, you know, has been attacking the area, and... Um, it just so happens to have some kind of, uh, symbiosis with this girl, you know, like, um, she, she builds a model of the monster and then one of, uh, one of her classmates breaks the horn off. And then, so the next time the monster shows up, it has a horn missing. And then the kind of the main conflict is, you know, the, the girl that broke the model doesn't want to tell the other girl who she's like been hanging out with a lot that she broke the horn off and, um, you know, all kinds of miscommunication ensues, and, uh, you know, she she ends up having to, like, basically admit that she broke this thing, and then um, they have to, like, it ends with them saying, like, well, maybe the monster will stop if we just give his horn back. Um, uh, I liked this one quite a bit. It was kind of sweet and had, like, a, a little bit of a kind of a dreamlike um quality to it um and uh i don't know it it had a little bit of uh with the way the monster and the the kids are it had a little bit of colossal in there um uh this was probably my favorite of the shorts um 
Kevin, what did you think of that that one? Uh, yeah, uh, you, you say Colossal, I say uh, Gridman, the, the anime. Uh, there's there's a lot of that in there. Um, uh, it's a shame that uh, there weren't more kind of the, the Japanese filmmakers coming over to kind of introduce and screen the movies themselves. Because Yeah, that's that that's be, something they, they you, we're, we're a little more used to, I think. It would certainly be be uh, fun to kind of pester in terms of what what intest- intentions there were with some of the some of the story beats there because it was a little bit ambiguous. Yeah, yeah, this one definitely plays with ambiguity a lot more. Um, you know, it it has a pretty open ending as well. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff that this one is kind of like, you know, it's more comfortable leaving things open to interpretation. Um, but that was a cool one. Uh, I don't think, I don't think that one is on YouTube or anything yet, but, you know, um, keep an eye out for it. It'll probably surface at some point. Um, and then the last one was, uh, I don't, is it, I think it's Great Monster, Beligular. Um, this one is, uh, there's um, some some young I, I don't know college age guys I guess uh, who see a meteorite crash and they look for the meteorite they can't find it but they do find a purple rock um, and the one guy calls his friend who uh, like whose job is to investigate stuff like that and uh, it turns out that uh, the rock has uh, possessed. Um, his, uh, their other friend, and, um, there is a giant monster, it looks a lot like an ultra monster, it's like, kind of a weird mishmash of stuff with tentacles, um, and, uh, yeah, that monster is now rampaging through the city. <clears throat> so it's all about how to stop this meteorite monster. This one probably has the most actual like kaiju action in it. Um, it's also the one that feels the most rough around the edges. Uh, it feels a little bit more like a student film um, than the other ones. Uh, it's directed by a guy named Takashi Iwamura. Um, I, I don't know who that is or what kind of background he has. Um... But yeah, I mean, uh, directorially, uh, a little bit more amateurish, but, um, I mean, this, these are short films, so I mean, this one was maybe 10, 15 minutes, um, but, uh, so, you know, I, it, it didn't wear out its welcome, uh, I don't know, it was, it was a fun one, that's that probably about that, as much as I have to say. Yeah, I think that was the one that felt the most conventional in terms of, you know, what you would expect to see at the G-Fest film festival um you know thinking thinking about previous years with you know something like zella or um new Magiris or you know one, one of those types of films uh whereas i think that something like kaiju girl is more like sometimes you play things like that and people in the audience will get a little antsy um and be like, well, wh- where where's the monster? <laughs> yeah, that that one's definitely more art house, mm-hmm. and this one is more. 
uh, I mean, Kaiju Girl, I could see myself going to, to like, a local art house theater to see some indie movie, and, you know, sometimes those theaters show, show a short film first. Like, I could see that playing in front of something like that. Beligular <laughs> is like, okay, oh, there's a short playing at the G-Fest Film Festival? Like, that is that is Beligular. <laughs> Berig- yes. Berigular. I, I don't know if I, I keep messing up that name, but... Uh, um. Uh, but I mean, I you know, it was enjoyable, even if it was, you know, I I tend to gravitate towards things that are more outside of the box. But you know, I mean, for something that's just fifteen minutes, I mean, it was a fun short. Um, uh, that's all we checked out at, as far as the film festival goes this year. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we. Uh, we had a good weekend. We, you know, we, we hung out. I know Kevin was a little more reclusive, but, uh, you know, like I said, I mean, I, I, I had a good time. Um, not every G fest is going to be the same, but, uh, I've never had a bad time at one. So, you know, I'm, I'm planning on being back next year. Yeah. Um, everyone that went, uh, everyone that masked up. Thank you. Um, yeah. Yep. And, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully next year things are a little bit more sorted out on, on that front so that we, uh, we don't have as many, uh, uh, as, as many sad stories uh, on the after, aftermath of, uh, <laughs> yeah. Next round, yeah. But. Um, yeah, I, me and you both still feel fine, but yeah, I, I've been seeing those posts. There's, <laughs> there's been quite a few at this point. Um, uh, real quick though, um, if no one has yet, I would recommend people go online and look up the trailer for the movie, the lake, which is a Thai giant monster movie that is coming out. Um, it, it's, uh, got, it's a, seems like a relatively big budget project, uh, um, from what I was told, the monster is about 60% practical effects, and um, me and Kevin uh, got a good look at that trailer a few days before it came out online, and um, it was actually shown at G-Fest as well during the opening ceremonies, but uh, it looks rad. Uh, it, it, I, I, I think people should check it out. I was honestly kind of blown away because... So often, especially, you know, some, from somewhere like Thailand, you hear like, oh, they're making a, a big, big creature feature. And you think, oh, this is going to this is going to look like some, you know, sci fi channel. Yeah, uh, cheap CG, like green screen abomination. Yeah. But uh, but no, we like, saw this and like, wow, this, um, you know, big big vibes of like the host or or even Jurassic Park in terms of, you know, lots of practical effects. It looks great. It looks really atmospheric. Um, so yeah, if, if the movie is as good as that trailer makes it like, it could be like a future classic. Mm-hmm. Like I, 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 w- I would tell people like, you know, as the trailers and stuff drop, like don't sleep on this because it, it looks pretty, pretty awesome. Oh, all right. 
So let's get into the second half of the podcast, which is our main event, which is 1966's The Magic Serpent. Um, this is a Toei film, and uh, I guess you could say it's their attempt at uh, um, latching on to the kaiju boom. Uh, 1966 and 1967 both have all kinds of stuff going on. Um, tons of movies from tons of studios, tons of stuff on TV. Um, and, uh, but also, um, uh, the ninja movie craze. So it's kind of a mashup of those things. And it's based on the Japanese myth of a fellow named Jiraiya. And, um, this is a, a myth that in Japan is no, um, stranger to pop culture. Um, and, uh, so before we talk about the movie itself, I think we should talk about Jiraiya a little bit. So, um, uh, Justin, what can you tell us about, you know, the, the, the myth of, of Jiraiya? Why, you know, I guess give us a, a little, uh, rundown of, uh, just what, what's his deal. Sure, Kyle. So, um, (laughs) the, uh. So, so Jiraiya is an interesting character, and um, I was actually curious how how you were going to introduce him because uh, I we we can talk about the designation of Jiraiya as a myth because um, I think that there's there's some interesting uh, some interesting stuff going on there. Well, it seems but, like um, Naruto is what most people will connect this character to, right? Well, I, I was going to say, if you go online and you do a Google search for Jiraiya, what you're going to get is you're going to get a bunch of Naruto stuff, right? Um, that's going to be the main thing. And and then if you kind of wade through all of that, or even if you look at some of that stuff on like some Naruto wikis or fan sites or stuff, the thing that you will very often see is that Jiraiya is referred to as being a Japanese folktale. And that's wrong. It's not a folktale. Jiraiya is a fictional literary character. Um, he was created by a writer, Onetake uh, Kanwate, um, in an 1806 book, uh, Jiraiya Setsuwa, or the story of Jiraiya. So we actually know the author, and we know the book, and we know when it was published, and this was not something that Onetake was drawing from previous folklore either, as is sometimes reported. There's there's no mention of this character um, uh, prior to, to him. So he appears to have been invented by this particular author, right? Uh, so uh, Onetake is, is an interesting character. That's his pin name. Uh, there's actually a lot of debate about what his real name might have been, um, scholars aren't quite sure. He was a very popular author, but he has that problem of being the fact that he was popular rather than kind of critically respected. So even though his work was widely read and was very influential, um, as, as we're going to discuss, uh, there isn't a lot of like good biographical information on him from the time that he was alive. Uh, so, so there's some questions about what his real name might have been. But Onetake was a pin name. Uh, we know that he was born in uh, 1760 in Edo, which is modern Tokyo. Um, we know that he was a student of the famous Japanese novelist 
uh, Takizawa Bakin, who is most well-known for having written the epic samurai novel The Hikinden, or Legend of the Eight Dog Soldiers, which I imagine you guys might have talked about when you did uh, Message from Space, right? That Toei movie, because that is based on, loosely based on, the Hikinden, right? Um, directed by Kenji Fukusatsu, that, that, who a couple years... Technically, legend is it Legend of the Eight Samurai that is also kind of... A few years later, that? yeah, Fukusaku does this more straight version called Legend of the Eight Samurai, yeah. So, but um, but yeah, Onitake was one of, of Bakhtin's students. Uh, and prior to writing Jiraiya, um, what he was apparently best known for was doing these kinds of satirical takes on uh, sort of Western culture, right? So he's he's still living during the Tokugawa era, so the period where Japan's in 200 years of self-imposed isolation. So there's very little information about the West getting in, mostly through uh, the Dutch, right, who are still allowed to trade through one port uh, down in Nagasaki, right, with, with the Japanese. And so... Uh, evidently Onetaki would get a hold of these sort of, you know, Western books and then he would write these like parody versions of them, basically making fun of uh, Western like science and technology. Like his apparently his best known book other than Jiraiya was called the Sino-Japano-Dutch Miscellany, which just makes fun of stuff like hot air balloons, electricity, diving bells, like what is this shit? Like, you know, so, um, but yeah, so that that was what he was primarily known for um, before writing Jiraiya, which he did uh, towards the end of his life. Um, so I, I mentioned earlier that Onetake was a pen name. Uh, so what that you you probably hear the Oni in that right, like demon. And what Onetake actually means is like demon samurai or demon warrior, which was a name that he apparently adopted because uh, he contracted syphilis at a pretty early age. And, you know, if that is a disease that's not treated, it can do real um, uh, damage to a person. And so he ended up pretty scarred and deformed throughout most of his life. He apparently didn't have a nose for much of his adult life. So he was a pretty frightening looking guy. And, uh, it, and it would be syphilis that would eventually kill him in 1818. Uh, so that's kind of mostly what we know about the author of Jiraiya. And like I said, he writes that book... Um, you know, in eight, in eighteen oh six, so shortly before before the end of his life, um, I also read uh, actually a, a guy uh, Jin uh, Zong's um, MA thesis uh, called the Didacticism of Jiraiya, and he points out that it's very likely that Onetake was a Buddhist because he notes that the original Jiraiya novel is sort of shot through with a lot of Buddhist um, ethics and morality, uh, specifically the idea of like karmic retribution. So, uh, but you know, since we're, we're here to talk about Jiraiya. Um, I'll go ahead and, and kind of summarize real briefly what the uh, the novel's about, because it, it's pretty interesting how uh, kind of different it is from the film that we're going to talk about. Uh, so, um, it, real short, so Jiraiya, the, the original novel, um, is, is interesting because Jiraiya is the protagonist, but he's not the main character. Um, I would compare it kind of like if you've seen Kurosawa's uh, Yojimbo, how, uh, you know, Mifune's character Sanjiro is the hero of that movie, 
but it's not really about him, right? He just kind of wanders into town and gets involved in this pre-existing conflict that he then ends up uh, help, ends up helping to resolve. And Jiraiya is very similar, right? It's about these peasants who are feuding with this um, uh, despotic uh, daimyo or, or lord, and Jiraiya kind of just pops in and out through the novel to sort of like help them out at, at certain junctures, right? And he's this very sort of uh, Robin Hood type figure, right? He's this kind of, um, you know, thief with a heart of gold, right? The good, the good bandit type of, uh, of character. And uh, about midway through the novel, the big thing that happens with him is that there's this scene where he's um, in, the, in the mountains, right, of Japan, and he comes across a rather large toad that is being attacked by a even larger snake. And when I say large, I mean like man-sized toad and like horse-sized snake, right? And one of the things that's also different, which is something that I don't think you see in any of the, the later like film versions, is in the original novel, Jiraiya is also like a gunslinger, right? They had guns at this point in Japan. And so he doesn't, you know... He kills this snake, but he doesn't do it with shurikens or a katana or anything like that. He just pulls out a gun and shoots. Um, and and this is also what you see in a lot of art, uh, you know, from from the time period that's been created based on this story. And so after he kills this snake, the toad is like so grateful that it's like, well, come with me in the mountains, and I'm going to teach you toad magic. And so Jiraiya goes with this toad into the mountains, kind of disappears from the story again for a long time. We go back to kind of the peasant characters and their sort of revolt or uprising against this daimyo. And then at the very end of the novel, Jiraiya comes back in, now armed not only with all of his sort of bandit and thief skills and gunslinging abilities, but also a knowledge of toad magic, which allows him to help uh, uh, save save these people and, and win the day. Right, And that's the, that's the original novel, basically, in its broadest kind of strokes. So, uh, and you probably noticed there's, there's quite a bit different than the movie, The Magic <laughs> Yeah, Sermon. I was going to say, this sounds nothing like this, this movie that we watched. Right, you know, and I think probably the most notable thing, if, if people are familiar with the, the film The Magic Serpent, or even, you know, the way this character is depicted in, like, Naruto, is that you'll notice that the uh, other kind of major sort of magical characters aren't there, which is the antagonist... Um, Orochimaru, who's this other kind of ninja sorcerer who can turn into a snake and or a dragon, and also uh, Tsunade, who is uh, Jiraiya's girlfriend, who has the power of like slug magic, right, or snail magic, uh, depending on, on the translation that you're looking at. So these characters actually come in later versions of this story, because what happens with, um, with Jiraiya is Onitake's novel is so popular that it gets adapted into what was at the time this relatively new medium of the kibyoshi, which is basically like 19th century manga. And, um, and so in uh, uh, 1839, you have the first of these kind of like Edo-era mangas come out called um, Jiraiya Gogetsu Monogatari, or The Tale of Brave Jiraiya. And this series is so popular it runs for 30 years and a total of 43 volumes. Um, and it has, it has a couple of different uh, writers and artists on it over the time. So it's almost in some ways more like an American comic book 
in that sense. But it, it seems to be, based on the research that I've done, that this is where these other characters start to get introduced, or at least kind of perhaps proto-versions of them. Because uh, the, the other thing is that this then uh, manga series, if you will, is so popular that it gets adapted into a kabuki play by a very famous uh, Japanese playwright named uh, Kowatake um, Mokuname. And it's actually one of the first uh, kabuki plays to be based on a work of popular fiction rather than like an older kind of myth or legend. And, and that play was called um, Kata Kiuchi Kaidan Jiraiya Monogatari, or The Tale of the Gallant Jiraiya. Um, and it first premiered in Edo in the summer of 1852. And uh, based on the entry uh, for that play in Samuel Leiter's The New Kabuki Encyclopedia, which I consulted, um, he mentions that in the earliest version of this play, there is a villain um, who has these like serpent powers, but he's not called Orochimaru, he's called um, Yashagoro. Right, so it seems to be kind of a proto version of the character that we're going to see in uh, the Magic Serpent, or like that you see in later things like uh, Naruto, for example. Also, um, actually, interestingly enough, uh, Leiter mentions that in his his synopsis for this uh, Kabuki play that Yashigoro is not just some ninja or wizard who's learned serpent magic. He's actually specifically described as being like the half-human, half-serpent son of a lake monster that lives in um, Oyagi Pond. So uh, I thought that was really interesting. Um, but yeah, it, it, you know, it becomes a kabuki play. It becomes super popular. Uh, the version, if, if you knew this story uh, from somewhere prior to Naruto or prior to the Magic Serpent, the other place that you might have encountered it is that in 1880, uh, there is a, um, a uh, Western uh, American writer um, named William Elliot Griffith who uh, goes over to Japan uh, as part of the Meiji Restoration. He's actually invited by um, the chief executive of internal affairs in the Japanese government at the time to help set up the first like Western style public schools in Japan. And he's, he's only over there for about four years, but he apparently just absolutely falls in love with Japan. And when he comes back to the U S he writes like 20 books on Japanese culture and mythology and folklore. And one of these is this 1880 book called the Japanese fairy world stories from the wonder lore of Japan. Um, and he includes a version of the Jiraiya story in there called uh, Jiraiya or the Magic Frog. And uh, Griffiths doesn't say where he got this specific story. There's actually this really interesting part in the introduction to that book where he talks about, you know, kind of the wild lengths that he had to go to get some of these stories, including like, you know, copying them down off of like the backs of like tattooed sailors and stuff, which I think <laughs> might be him, you know, I don't know how true that is. Um, but, but the version of Jiraiya that he's telling is probably almost certainly based on a Kabuki play 
that he watched. And the version that you'll find in his book, Japanese Fairy World, uh, right, coming from the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, is the version that lines up much more closely with what we see in The Magic Serpent or in, in animes like Naruto, because you've got Jiraiya depicted as a kind of bandit ninja character. He knows frog magic. He's got his slug girlfriend. And you've got the villain Orochimaru. So, and, and you can find uh, that book, Japanese uh, Fairy World Online. It's so old, it's in public domain now. So and you, can, you can read that story, um, or Griffith's version of it. But that is... Um, yeah, you know, that's kind of the most basic sort of rundown of the history of Jiraiya. I think as we talk probably more about the Magic Serpent, we can get into some of the other, like, cultural specificities or where some of these ideas are coming from. Uh, but that's the that's, that's sort of everything in the, the very broad strokes. And I did want to circle back around to uh, the point about uh, this not being a folktale, but arguably um you could describe this as a myth um and so you know the the difference there though it might it might sort of seem like splitting hairs is the fact that you know when you call something a folktale what you're suggesting is that this was a story that came about through you know the common people right something that developed organically and so by its very nature something that was a literary product that had a single author who we can identify is not a um, uh, is not a folktale, right? But the term myth is much broader um, and doesn't have necessarily those specific connotations. And actually, in in more recent years, there has been uh, some scholarship that has argued that certain literary characters like Sherlock Holmes or Dracula um, should be regarded as uh, as mythological characters at this point because even though they have specific authors who we can identify and they developed in uh, they were developed in literary works they've been in the public domain for so long now and they've had so many permutations and variations on them and everybody kind of knows who they are right even if you've never read Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, or you've never read Bram Stoker, if you say Sherlock Holmes to somebody on the street, or you say Dracula, there's a mental image that nevertheless pops into their head. You don't really have to explain that to them. And so, uh, you know, in particular, there's an English scholar, Philip Ball, in the last year, who wrote a book called The Modern Myths, where he makes this argument. So, And I think that there's some merit to that, and I think you can look at a character like Jariah and see it as an example of one of these modern myths in that this is a character who has a literary origin, but who obviously has come to occupy such a prominent role in the Japanese sort of imagination that he is, in a sense, like, mythical. Right, like how, you know, you say Frankenstein and people think of a flat-headed, green-faced guy with bolts in his neck, none of which is anything from the novel. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah, so... Um, yeah, not a yeah, not nothing to do with the Mary Shelley story, right? Interesting. All right. Well, uh, thank you for uh, that comprehensive uh, history lesson. Um, so uh, there have been a lot of cinematic versions of 
<clears throat> Jiraiya, um, uh, both pre and post Magic Serpent. Um, two that we'll mention, uh, before the Magic Serpent, um, the oldest one, I believe, is, uh, Nikatsu's silent film from 1921. Uh, I believe it runs about 20 minutes or so, um, you can find that easily, like, you know, it's on YouTube and stuff. Uh, they had, uh, now, with with silent films in Japan, they often had um, a person, like, standing there narrating. So, w- without that, <laughs> um, the, the, the film kind of just seems like things happening. <laughs> um, if you know the story, I'm sure it will make more sense, but... Um, you know, you have the the you have you know, uh, like there's like a guy in like a big toad suit and stuff. So I, I I've seen that referred to as the first tokusatsu film. I don't know if anyone here wants to uh, dispute that. Um, I don't know how. I don't know. I, I I mean, I can't think of anything that predates it. So. Um, maybe? Yeah, I mean, definitely among what's surviving. Um, there's a, a whole uh, book kind of on that uh, subject matter. Um, what is it? Uh, Car- Carnal Curses and Disfigured Dreams that kind of just goes through the whole pre-war period of, of Japanese genre movies. But so much was lost that, um, you know, having the opportunity to see something from as early as 21 is... Um, it's special in its own right, but I mean, yeah, the, a lot of this stuff was being done in the, the Kabuki plays. So, uh, it's entirely possible because there were some earlier incarnations of, of the Jiraiya story on film that maybe some of the effects from the Kabuki plays were in previous versions that we just don't know about because nobody can see them and nobody alive today has seen them. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, that book that that Kevin mentioned, um, "Carnal Curses and, and Disfigured Dreams," is is really interesting. And yeah, uh, it's just basically a, a sort of annotated list of you know all of these lost um, Japanese special effects films, or or you know early Japanese special effects films, most of which are lost. And the Jiraiya thing is really interesting because it points out that between 1912 and 1926, there are at least nine different Jiraiya movies made of which this 1921 version is the only version that survives right so you know that's that's one out of nine films so it, it goes to show you how popular and pervasive this story was in, in early 20th century japan and again that that silent version which we do have parts of that you can find online now um also has all of these kinds of familiar elements which again is another indication of you know the sort of codification process of you know, this story down the road. Yeah. Um, then the, uh, the other one, which, uh, uh, there's another one that me and Kevin both watched, uh, called Ninja's Weapon, uh, which is also a Toei movie. Um, uh, Justin had pointed it out to us without seeing it. So, you know, you're, 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 I'm, I'm not blaming you here. Um, <laughs> but that's an earlier version from Toei from, uh, 1956, 
Um, and, you know, I, it, at first we were like, oh, there's another one that Toei did? Like, maybe we'll just make it a double feature and, you know, talk about that one too. But, I mean, Kevin and I both watched this thing and, like, it was such an uninteresting slog <laughs> that, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, we, we just really didn't feel like it was worth talking about at any length. Um, uh, the most frog you get is a, is a shadow frog. Yeah. Uh, and, um, a guy gets a frog thrown at his face early in the movie. And then the most snake you get is like a, kind of a, a, a you know, a, a cheap, looking kind of uh you know big snake prop that you know shows up a couple times um but yeah i mean i i'm even by the standards of you know japanese fantasy movies or even japanese period films you know jidai geki stuff uh it just was not up to snuff uh i i, I mean it it's it it, it, it I think what I said when we were watching it, I, I said, like, this is like watching The Magic Serpent, but nothing happens. Like, it, it, imagine, like, when we do our plot breakdown of The Magic Serpent, like, and just tell you it verbally, imagine that only played out as, as like, a feature-length movie. That's about as interesting as this version of the story is. Like starring like a sixty-year-old man as the, as the lead. Yeah, the guy playing Jiraiya is uh, Chezo Kata Kataoka, um, who yeah, he was. This guy was like in his sixties or something, fifties or sixties or something when when he was playing Jiraiya, who in the movie is supposed to be in like his early twenties, and this guy does not look. It this is like. This is like if you made like a movie about James Bond in his 20s but it was Roger Moore in the later era of his run as Bond. Like it it was just ridiculous and I could not take it seriously. Um yeah, on Letterboxd I gave it a one and a half, Kevin gave it a two and a half. He was a little more generous than me, but uh just I don't think this really impressed either of us enough to pass it down to you two and make it a big, you know, uh, part of this podcast. It just, you know, uh, man, it was just so dry. It, it was like the driest, like, version of this story you could imagine. Um, but, uh, so... Um, I know there's also the other version that I found while doing my research, which none of us watched because it's a, apparently not available anywhere with English subtitles, but there's a Shin Toho version from 1955 called um, Gaiakushu Orochimaru, um, yeah. which, according Gyakushu. to... Huh? Gyakushu Orochimaru. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I've, I've seen it once upon a time when it was on YouTube, but it wasn't subtitled. It's no longer on YouTube, so it's... Yeah, there's a there's a review on Letterbox from somebody who watched it when it was apparently on YouTube, um, who is evidently a, a fan of this stuff because they they know all of the same references that we do. And at least according to this one review, they say that there's actually some decent like special effects in this one. But like we said, there's no there, it wasn't subbed, so we passed on that one. Um. And then, uh, I mean, are there any truly, I mean, we talked about Naruto, are there any more truly, like, noteworthy um, post-Magic Serpent adaptations that you want to mention real quick? 
Kaku Ranger, I think, is, is worth a... I mean, just just in terms of the Black Ranger, um, play, played by Ken Kasugi, is um, uh, Jiraiya in, in that one. So he has a giant frog mecha. Um, there was a, a toy uh, metal hero um, also named Jiraiya that's a little less to do even than that. So after the Magic Serpent, did it become a norm for uh, the Toad and Snake to be, like, gigantic kaiju? Well, they're they're clearly giant even before that, because, like I mentioned in the original uh, novel by Onitake, um, you know, they're, they're, when he runs into that Toad and that Snake, which, you know, in, in this context, I mean... You know, my understanding is that they're not supposed to be, you know, shape-shifting wizards as much as just sort of supernatural animals, right? A, a sort of yokai along the lines of like Ketsune or, or Tanuki. Um, you know, they're they're already huge, and in fact, that was something I checked. So, you know, one of my, uh, you know, one of the, one of the best resources that I've I've come across over the years for a lot of stuff is this really old. Uh, essay by a, a German scholar named U.A. Kazel, who who wrote this. I, I, it's an it's an essay, I guess technically, um, but it's so long it might as well be a book. It's almost like a hundred pages. Uh, that's called um, the the Goblin, Fox, and Badger, and other witch animals in Japan. Right, clearly, you know, this predate the more contemporary you know, introduction of terms like yokai into the English language. So Kazel's doing his best to, to make that clear. But I, I went and I checked that essay because he has a sort of systematic breakdown of all of these different you know, supernatural animals in uh, Japanese folklore. And he does, in fact, have a brief section on toads and frogs, which is actually sort of like a subsection under the part on kappa. And he mentions that that's an element from... Uh, Japanese folklore is this belief that you know the that if uh, the older a, a toad or a frog gets, the bigger it gets, right? And so the oh. idea here is that if you see a toad or a frog that you know human size or bigger, you're looking at one that is sort of like hundreds of years old or thousands of years old, which is similar to you know the idea that like Ketsune, the older they get, you know they they start to sprout multiple tails. So if you see like a nine-tailed fox, right, which should sound familiar to people from Pokemon and other things, um, you're, you're just seeing an, a fox that's really, really old, or even something like, um, you know, Studio Ghibli's uh, uh, Princess Mononoke, where you have, like, the wolf gods and the boar gods who are basically just, like, you know, normal animals, except they've grown gigantic, and, and the wolves have two tails. So, so King you know. Ghidra is old as hell, is what you're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, it, it is. It's interesting. It's interesting to think about that link. I mean, maybe not so much with Ghidra, but if you think about like Godzilla, for example, right? Because from the very first film in 1954, there's this idea that Godzilla is supposed to be a dinosaur, right? Even though he's he's much larger than any dinosaur that ever actually lived but if you apply that kind of japanese folklore logic to it you know if godzilla's been hanging out somewhere for the last 65 million years then yeah why wouldn't he be 54 meters tall by that point mm -hmm. in in the kabuki shows and i i did see one actually at, at uh, toei when i when i went to the theme park there 
the they do tend to keep the you know about uh, human size for the for the frogs and snakes. Um, actually, in uh, in Samurai Showdown, if you play as Kyoshiro, he has several frog themed moves because he's like a kabuki dude. But I think part of the uh, what Magic Serpent might have changed around is is really expanding that scale to proper kaiju size, and from there on, yeah, you get things like. Um, like in Cocker Ranger with the, the Toad Mecha or the uh, the appearances in Naruto or the uh, the Ursa Yatsura episode with the, um, the the three animals. They're also very, like, kaiju size. Um, so because of those mi- visual mediums, they're not as constrained as you would be in a kabuki theater. That might be part of it, but it might also just be part of the, you know, cashing in on kaiju being a, a part of Japanese cult- pop culture in a way that they weren't really prior to the, the 50s. Yeah, I, I mean, if you look at the trailers and the poster and stuff, they're definitely playing up the giant monster showdown kind of angle. Um, uh, I, I also wanted to come back to this thing as far as, like, you know, this the reverberations of this in Japanese pop culture, um, you know, post-Magic Serpent. Uh, you know, Kevin mentioned uh, Kaku Ranger, right, one of the Super Sentai series that's ninja themed. And so you have a character named Jiraiya with a, a toad, uh, Mecca, but also, um, you see this in, in a lot of other places, including one of the more recent super Sentai series, which was, um, Shuriken Sentai Ninja, which was turned into the power Rangers series, Ninja steel recently. And in that one, it's also ninja themed, but, um, in, in that instance, it's the ninjas, uh, or the, the Rangers blasters that they carry, are all shaped like, you know, toads. So, um, and they even kind of, they like ribbit when uh, there's like danger nearby. So, which again, is the sort of thing that seems, you know, I think really surreal to American audiences because, you know, I, I, I don't think even, you know, as popular as Ninja has have become in the West that necessarily people still make that, that link that seems much more natural in Japan where you connect ninjas to toads or frog because of uh, because of Jiraiya, right? And the other example of that that I think of is uh, is in Pokemon, right? They have a, a frog monster which is also a ninja uh, because of this same kind of connection, right? Um, I, what what's the name of that one, Kevin? Uh, I I don't remember. It was it was in Detective Pikachu. It was. They did have them in the Detective Pikachu movie. I remember that. So. Well, this has all been uh, fascinating. Greninja. There we go. Yeah. So uh, this has all been uh, pretty fascinating stuff. Um, so uh, hopefully that gives the folks a dense enough history lesson um, that, you know, if they, they have some further reading or watching that they can do. Um, uh, I know that there has been, you know, multiple other live-action Jiraiya movies over the years, but... Uh, uh, I know usually we try to be as exhaustive as possible, but at this point we, we should probably just go ahead and uh, do our review of the movie. Um, and uh, uh, Kevin, obviously we have you on a lot, but one reason I wanted you on here is because I remember way back when, before we even like really knew you well, the first time we had you on was actually just to interview you about your book, and I remember asking, like, what is your favorite kaiju movie, uh, you know, in here and you said the magic serpent so that always stuck with me as like okay 
Kevin's an obvious, you know, seat for when we do the Magic Serpent. Um, so let's talk about the Magic Serpent. Uh, this is 1966, as I said before. Um, the kaiju boom in Japan is in full swing. Um, you know, uh, the Ultra franchise is taking off. Godzilla is is huge. Uh, you know, 67 would see kaiju movies from basically every major studio in Japan. Um, so this is directed by Tatsuya Yamanochi, um, who doesn't sound like is a stranger to ninja stuff. Um, uh, he did um, uh, a TV series, um, uh, which here was uh, compiled into something called Red Ninja, um, what what was the Japanese title for this, Kevin? Kamen Ninja Akakage, or the Red Shadow. Um, so so basically, this was based on a, a project by uh, Mitsuteru Yokoyama, who is also the person responsible for uh, for Giant Robo, aka uh, Johnny Sako and his Giant Robot, and uh, Tetsujin Twenty Eight, aka Gigantor. Um, so he kind of had this this ninja uh, property. Um, that um, was was done as a as a, a Tokusatsu series um, by Toei, um, and at at this juncture in time, um, both Daie and Toei were very into this. Um, they they had competing waves of uh, Tokusatsu Jidai Geki, so special effects period pieces. So at Daie, you had Daimajin and the Yokai movies, and then at um, at Toei, you had uh, Watari, uh, Watari the Mad, uh, the Ninja Boy. Um, you had a, a movie called Golden Ninja, which is kind of like a, a, a comedy piece. Uh, you had Magic Serpent, and then you had the TV series uh, for uh, Red Shadow. Uh, and and Red Shadow actually re- recycles the kaiju from magic serpent um uh as as well as has a whole host of other kaiju so it was it was one of those shows that was also cashing in on uh, on ultraman while being uh, a period piece which was another big popular genre so it was chocolate and peanut butter uh for those japanese studios at those times uh yeah so the magic serpent i think I mean, I think it, it, if you enjoy those titles that you just rattled off, I mean, I can almost, I almost find it inconceivable <laughs> that you wouldn't like the Magic Serpent. It's a, it's a little more lighthearted than you know the Daimajin series, but it's, it ticks off a lot of those boxes. Um, so let's get into that, uh, Matt. You have been very quiet as you've been uh, listening to. Um, this very dense uh, history given here. Are you confident uh, that you could summarize this movie just so you can, uh, you know, yeah, be I, yeah, I'm yeah. Sure. I, I'm, I'm, yeah <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I know these <coughs> these two have done most of the talking, but I want I want to uh, I want to get into the movie. So why don't you tell us what the Magic Serpent is <clears throat> all about? Yeah, so I'll do my best to paint kind of the the broad strokes, but. Um, Essentially, you have a uh, the movie actually opens up kind of with a bang where you have this lord and his wife being murdered by uh, this general uh, who goes by Daijo Yuki. And we learn that he's kind of in cahoots with Orochimaru, 
Um, and Orochimaru can transform into a serpent, which we get to see really early on. Um, as they are attacking the king and his queen, their son is sent away with their loyal sol uh, soldiers to kind of get away from Orochimaru. And then we see Orochimaru transform into a giant serpent um, who is then promptly attacked by a giant eagle. And the eagle actually saves the young boy. And then you get a giant uh, time skip. We meet uh, grown-up Jiraiya, and we learn that he is actually learning uh, toad magic. And he is, um, I believe the, it's Dojin Hiki. Uh, this, he kind of calls him like an old hermit, I guess. Uh, we learn that Hiki is actually the one who transformed into the, um, the giant eagle and, and saved the boy early on. Uh, along the way, we also realize that uh, da Daijo Yuki is still tracking down the son of this kingdom because he wants to make sure that the people don't find out he's still alive and that he can challenge his rule uh, to the throne. And then we are introduced to Sanade. Um, and Sanade is kind of this love interest uh, of uh, Jiraiya. And uh, Hiki, which is the person training Jiraiya, is confronted by Orochimaru. And the big reveal there is that actually Orochimaru used to study under Hiki. And he poisons him and he ends up killing him. Um, and it kind of sets up this conflict between, of course, Orochimaru and Jiraiya later on. And as the story progresses, um, we actually have this showdown between uh, Daijo, Orochimaru, and then uh, Jiraiya. And what we also learn is that Orochimaru has nefarious plans of his own where he's going to turn on the person he helped to conquer the kingdom. And he wants to rule it for himself. And then at the big, at the conclusion... Um, you have this awesome battle where Jiraiya can transform into the toad. Orochimaru takes the, the form of a serpent. You have this crazy spider thing that jumps in. And movie's a lot of fun. You have a lot of uh, sword battles. And it's really unique, I think, for those things. Um, but in the And I think the final battle is actually a lot of fun. Huge castle miniatures. A giant like waterfront uh, set with like a, a, a lake set piece. And, uh, of course, we have our hero, Jiraiya, winning, saving the day, defeating Orochimaru and the giant serpent. Um, and that's kind of how the, the movie movie ends. So there, there's the broad strokes. Uh, yeah, no, not bad. Um, yeah. The only thing I left out that we also learned, Sinade, is um, the daughter of Orochimaru. Yes. Is, now, is that made up for the, the movie, or did that come from something else i believe if i remember correctly that that is something that's from uh pre-existing material but um i don't remember uh what exactly but i don't think that that was an element that was invented just for the film yeah and I, I know like uh in, in naruto um, like Jiraiya, Sanade, and Orochimaru were actually peers, and they studied under the same ninja. So, like, it's very different there as well. Um, you know, one yeah, a thing, lot of the, oh, oh, yeah. Go, no, go ahead, Justin. I was, I was, gonna, I was gonna say, yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff that's in the Magic Serpent, uh, from what I've been able to glean, does does come from or seem to have some variation in in the the source material as you know as voluminous as it is like the eagle thing um comes from that original um uh, mizoguchi kabuki play uh for example that's where that element seems to have first appeared uh, i know that one and i know in, in the version that griffith tells 
in his book, um, it's a Tengu rather than an eagle, uh, which I thought was interesting. The only thing in the Magic Serpent that I don't know if there's any um, precursor for is, you know, that they, instead of, of giving, um, you know, Sonata the power uh, related to, like, slugs, she she has powers relate. she has a, this, uh, like, basically, like, hair barrette that she turns into the giant spider that Matt mentioned that shows up kind of out of nowhere during the, the climactic battle. Um, yeah, that, that was that was because the actors didn't want to be associated with slugs. <laughs> you know what's okay. interesting about that, though, is um, the, the 1956 version, which was also a Toei movie, if you remember, the, the ninjas, well, god damn it, I don't know, whatever the stupid thing was, ninja's, ninja's weapon. weapon. Yeah, um, they don't do, like, the whole, like, spider thing but the that character has like towards the end she has like spider like powers which in that movie jank ass version of it like instead of anything cool like her robe like has like a spider web kind of thing on it and and so so that character is associated with spiders in that version as well so i don't know maybe maybe if this is a carrying over a little bit of that from that version because it's also it is the same studio um i mean maybe yeah I but was, then it I could was just curious. be the actress didn't want to be or uh, considered a slug or whatever <laughs> whatever well yeah I, I was i was curious about that because the the only other thing that i didn't mention earlier as as part of the spiel because i i figured it might come up and this seems like as fine a, a time as any is you know if if anybody's wondering about this seemingly weird kind of dynamic with these three characters where it's a, a toad versus a serpent versus a slug right um what this is is actually in reference to is so in japan you have a lot of like traditional hand games or games you can play with your hands um which are, are, are sansukumi and one of these that's one of the actually sort of oldest is called mushikin or the game of small animals um, and this game actually predates Onetake's Jiraiya. And it's basically just the Japanese version of rock, paper, scissors, except instead of rock, paper, scissors, it's toad, snake, slug. So, and it's, uh, if, if you want the breakdown of that, it's snake beats toad, toad beats slug, but slug beats snake. So, oh, okay. so that's what that's what that whole thing is actually in reference to is just them, you know, it it it's literally as if you know you had like an American, I guess like superhero movie where the three characters had powers based on rocks, paper, and scissors. So okay, so next time my daughter wants to play, play paper, scissors, rock, I'll say let's play snake, toad, slug. <laughs> I I can send you. There are still like Edo era instruction manuals that you can find online if you want to see how to do the little uh hand gestures for oh each yeah other. no so, that's that's yeah. awesome <laughs> um uh so yeah the the magic serpent is one that uh i probably didn't see until probably i mean this i came later to this one i i know it came to tv um from american international but i i didn't see it until um, Retro Media had that DVD, which is like basically a VHS rip of like the pan and scan dub. Um, which this movie is very overdue for a, a 
a new release here in, in the U.S. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I would say don't expect, you know, too much kaiju action. Uh, it's mostly in the third act, which is awesome. It's good kaiju action. Um, so I, I would still recommend it to kaiju fans. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of just... Because uh, we, we talked about how... Um, the old man uh, had trained both Jiraiya and Orochi Maru. And so because of that, a lot of people, at least here, I'm not sure about in Japan, but at least here in the U.S., like it's almost impossible to find English language writing on this that doesn't make some kind of uh, uh, accusation or um, connection to Star Wars. You know, I've, I've seen even people authors within this fandom, you know, say George Lucas ripped off the magic serpent and so on. Um, I'm not sure how you guys feel, but in my opinion, I, I mean, I, we know George Lucas liked tokusatsu and Japanese cinema and Japanese mythology. I mean, he always had that built into Star Wars. I mean, it's in the DNA of Star Wars, but... I don't know. I, I'm not sure if I'm really sold on the fact on, on him taking from this specific film. Um, there's that David McRoby quote that uh, me and Justin have thrown around, where you know Western fans of uh, Japanese media tend to connect everything in some way to Japanese media. Um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's there's there's a lot there um i could definitely see it being a case where there i i I think there being inspiration would make a lot of sense yeah Um, but it it also just uh, seems like something that like if it was true i don't feel like it's something george lucas wouldn't have said i mean george lucas is very open about being like that is the you know that that's the hidden fortress Right there. He's like, I mean, he'll say, like, I basically took the Hidden Fortress and put it in space and combined it with, you know, Flash Gordon and these old serials. I mean, he's kind of like Guillermo del Toro. If he's stealing something, it just seems like he's always been the the first one to be like, yep, you know, I I lifted that. So, I I don't know. I I feel like he would have probably said, like, there's this old movie, The Magic Serpent. I watched a lot as a kid, and... so that's where I got this idea. I think what's more likely, and this this is usually what happens when comparisons like this are made, what's more likely is probably Lucas is, maybe he did take that kind of relationship from, you know, if not this, you know, it, if not a version of the Jiraiya story, then maybe some other Japanese, you know, just, Myth, but it, I mean, it, it seems more of a trope than something that you can draw. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure this is not the first time you've had a story where you know an, one apprentice becomes a villain and one apprentice becomes a hero. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, specifically, what it is is you have a family who the father is betrayed and murdered by the apprentice of this one sorcerer guy. The sorcerer guy takes the child out to the wilderness to, to raise him into his new apprentice. Um, so, I mean, that, that kind of archetype definitely like 
I have a difficult time thinking of many other examples that are as close to Star Wars. Um, you know, other things like, you know, Orochimaru being Tsunade's father, that's a little bit more, eh, you know, that that I could see being more coincidental. Um, but just in terms of, like, that general setup. Um, but who knows? Like, it's, it's also, it, even if it's not a conscious thing when something is kind of inspired like there are there are how many examples of things that just become part of the the cultural lexicon and nobody you know really remembers where they got them yeah that's true too um i'm sure uh next week when we have george lucas on the podcast we can just ask um anyway um so yeah, that's probably the first time I saw it. Um, so I saw you know with the AIP dub, which I I still like. Um, uh, but yeah, it's always it's a movie that uh, I've always liked, and for whatever reason, I've only seen it maybe th- two, maybe three times. You know, for whatever reason, it's not one that I come back to a lot. But every time I I I do, I'm like glad that I've watched it, um, and I'm glad I'm doing this because this is one of those movies where it's like. Why haven't we talked about this by now? We have a, a there's a little list of like really obvious movies that we haven't gotten to. This was definitely one of them. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, how do you guys feel about the movie? I also first saw Magic Serpent via the retro media release where it was put out on DVD as a double feature with one of the Showa Gamera movies. Yeah, I actually it, don't remember it which was, one. Uh, yeah, it was Gamera versus Gauss. Okay. But so yeah, since I had like a better version of that, like whenever I put that disc in, I just it was the magic serpent. So yeah, I don't blame you for not remembering which camera. Right. I mean, that was, you know, that was the first time um that I saw it was and I, and I was probably in my early 20s when I first saw saw it because I, you know, I finally got a hold of that disc through like an eBay a uh, lot and um and I watched it and and it didn't make an immediate sort of like great impression on me the first time I saw it and it was really only later on when I was able to see you know um the film in in uh you know it's proper like widescreen and you know cleaned up where the the print wasn't all dirty and um you know Japanese with subtitles and we should also mention with the um, original uh, folio because uh, one of the weird things about the AIP dub for that movie is that they took out all of the original roars that the monsters had and replaced them with um, roars from the Toho Kaiju, including Godzilla. That's right, yeah. So, um, which is which is an odd, which is a, an interesting choice on their part. Um, so. You know, but that was, I think that was probably like, yeah, when, when I finally saw like the Japanese version of it, then I, I was really able to kind of appreciate it more. Um, and that was around the same time that I saw, uh, you know, Watari, the boy ninja, which I think Kevin mentioned, and also uh, the uh, um, Red Shadow compilation movies, which are only available sort of dubbed but you know that they're they're serviceable right not that the the aip 
AIP version um, isn't, uh, you know, if as far as dubs go, right? Because AIP did good work on that front, so... Yeah, I mean, I cringe every time I hear somebody say Arakamaru, but you know. yeah, that's what I yeah, that's what I'm I'm used to also. <laughs> um, I guess I'll go next. I actually saw this movie for the first time probably like seven seven years ago. I actually watched it with uh, with Eric Henry, who's been on our show before. Um, then it blew me away because I hadn't seen anything like it. And, and really, I mean, it kind of fits in that weird space with uh, Daimajin where. You're getting a lot of fun uh, sword battles. You're getting some actual like decent character work, and then you have monsters on top of it. And I really enjoy this movie because I think it's incredibly charming. Um, I think it's what it's less than ninety minutes, and it offers kind of everything that I would want from uh, a brisk movie that runs under ninety minutes. That gives you something that's you know really quick pace. It gets in and out fast, and I think um, having the sword battles is actually really fun. It's different. I think it offers something, uh, you know, if you're watching and looking for giant monster stuff and that's all you care about, you may not like this, but I actually am thankful for like a breath of, of fresh air because all of the, the sword battles are actually really fun. Um, they're atmospheric and I actually, the, the set pieces are awesome. I think the, the castle set at the end of the movie in the very beginning uh, with the water is, is just really majestic to, to check out and um, while the battle itself and the wire work is a bit more sloppy compared to, say, like Toho stuff, I actually think the, the designs of the serpent and, and the uh, toad are pretty, pretty incredible. So I had a lot of fun with this. Yeah, Kevin, your book, uh, not to call you out or anything, <laughs> your book says Keizo Murase uh, was involved in the suits. I, I. I don't. I I wasn't able to verify that. I don't know if that's. I don't know. Is that something that you recall saying? <laughs> He's dead, Jim. Did I kill him? <laughs> Who's still here? I'm still here. Okay. I don't know. What, I don't know what happened to. Kevin. So, All right. Well, uh, um, so Keizo Morase may or may not have been involved in the suit construction. Um, uh, yeah, we, I was I was going to ask Kevin because I don't remember from his book if uh, who did the special effects. Yeah, um, I have. Uh, oh, Kevin! Kevin left, so either he, either you offended him to his core, or his internet died, which is. <laughs> um. Okay, yeah, uh, this, well, the, I, it sounds like some of the Gamera Vets, um, Equus Productions, um, were behind some of that, um, uh, Kevin's book says the kaiju crafted by Keizo Murase and the other Gam and the other Gamera makers from Equus, um, he says they look a, li a little bit stiff and you can see some wires, but it's impressive considering that Tohei was a very, very new to this sort of thing. Um, and then, uh, so, uh, oh, yeah, th that's actually uh, interesting. This is, um, so uh, Tatsuya Yamanouchi, the director, um, actually directed the special effects sequences himself. So, you know, Toho and Daie and Subaraya and a lot of, I mean, most uh, uh, traditional tokusatsu Productions are made with two uh, directors, someone that directs all the live, ac live action 
um, you know, character and actors. And then someone else that directs all the kaiju and special effects scenes. Um, so he actually did double duty on this. Um, which I know yeah, that he, that's he, true he, about Toho. Is that true about Daiei? Because uh, I was under with the, the impression... With the Gamera films, no. Yuasa did most of those himself. But I, I, I believe when it comes to stuff like Daimajin and 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 um some of the yokai films uh i know that they some of those had had the two separate teams um okay because i was gonna say i i thought i remembered that yuase directed both the live action yep, and the for, special for, effects yeah, stuff the, yeah for for the gamera movies that's true uh it's on all for, of them Baruga. Yep, except Baragon. On on Baragon, Yuasa, I believe, still did the special effects scenes, but uh, yep. th- th- but they had a different um, director for the the dramatic scenes. So um, right, which is which uh, is part of why I think that Barugan is the best of the show of Gamera. I have the Marase book. I'm going to go track that down and see if there's any pictures of the suits because I feel like they would be in there yeah. if you worked on them. Um, Kevin just sent a message. Uh, he said, yeah, his internet blipped. He's trying to reconnect. So, we, you know, we can ask him We can ask him to, you know, what kind of fact check he has on that in just a minute. But uh, anyway, no, uh, I do really like the monster stuff. I mean, no, it's not as impressive as what Subaraya was doing or the Daimajin films were doing. Um but uh, uh, it does. I mean, I, it's better than what the camera movies were doing, um, and uh, it, it you know the it, the the toad spits fire like Gamera or Yongari or you know tons of TV kaiju, and that that always looks a little cheaper to me than you know the the optical beam of you know what Godzilla would shoot or something. But what I do like in this is that they the 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 dragon, um, uh, the dragon shoots water like a water hose, which, <laughs> I, like, yeah, it, it 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 does look a little silly, but I think it's cool because you, you don't see that a lot. And also, if you're gonna be cheap and just do the flamethrower in the mouth, uh, having a hose in the mouth of the other monster is a cool, like, um, uh, like, uh, way to kind of, you know, play that up. Um, uh, from what I understand, Kevin has returned. Um, Kevin, I just wanted to do a quick fact check on you, uh, to see if you recall, um, <laughs> in, your book, you say that the suits were um, uh, crafted by Keizo Marase, um, and I was just having a hard time verifying that. I wanted to know if you like remembered saying that or where that might have come from. Uh, yeah, I, I think. Um, well, it's it's on the Japanese Wikipedia page right now, so if nothing else, that's uh, that's there. Because uh, I've got that up in front of me, that the Marase okay. work on those. Um, also, uh, the effects were directed by the main director, which is unusual. For yeah, yeah, we we were just talking about that. Because um, uh, yeah, aside from uh, Yuasa doing that on the Gamera films, that especially then, I mean, wasn't super common. Um, I know now, you know, guys like Taguchi and stuff have, have done more of that, but, um, 
but yeah, that 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 that's definitely something that that makes this kind of stand out, and maybe um, some of the more awkward staging of of the monster stuff is maybe a result of that. Um, but yeah, you say uh, Keizo Marase and the Gamera Makers from Equus, so. Um, if not Marase himself, it does sound like uh, some of his um, colleagues at Equus Productions definitely helped. Um, I think Matt's trying to track down his copy of the Marase book, um, see if there's photos or something in there. But anyway, um, uh, so yeah, Kevin, you you dropped for a minute. So uh, we we were, I mean, we were just kind of giving impressions of the movie and. Um, uh, we kind of shifted our attention to the monster sequences. Um, so, uh, how do you feel about the the actual kaiju uh, scenes of, of of this movie? Uh, you know, the kaiju scenes themselves are um, they're fun. I I have the the figure set of of the four kaiju that uh, um, came out, but the, you know, the the kaiju scenes are not. You know, while that is the focus, like that's literally the title of the movie is is based around that. Uh, what what sold me on the movie was um, earlier on just the scene of, of Jiraiya basically taunting some enemy ninja by cutting his own head off and and uh, <laughs> messing with them, and then that kind of like frenetic energy is really what um, got me as as all of this really uh, gonzo uh, over the top action as as the ninja stuff, and then having those monsters is just icing on the cake. You're probably the only Westerner that came at this to see a ninja movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, that, that is a great scene though. That that's pretty early in the film too, uh, where, yeah, he cuts his own head off to like mess with these guys. Um, or, or like another sequence where he, he has to fight a bunch of flying doors, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was actually one of the, the two scenes that I wanted to mention because um, I, I did rewatch this movie. Uh, what was it like like a week ago now? Like when we were originally supposed to do this last Friday, um, I, I rewatched it that recently. And two of the things that I made note of that really struck me was a that flying door sequence because that was one where I I sat there and I watched that and I really wasn't sure how they did that because. It's actually really impressive looking, um, I thought. And and there was that scene, and then there were a couple of others um, where there were just some really interesting kind of like camera choices, um, including one uh, where I think it's if it's not um, it's not a to not to not a, the the, um, the spider girl or, or slug girl. Um, then I think it might have been the the other female character in this, uh, but you know where their um, their face is like pressed against the floor, and it's shot up through what's clearly like a glass plate that they're like leaning against. Um, that that scene also really struck me. If anybody recalls that, so yeah, the direction is overall pretty slick. Um... Uh, you know, I'm not sure what, comparatively, I'm not sure what the budget was like. Um, 
some of the kaiju stuff can be a little clumsy or more on the cheaper looking side when compared to um, <clears throat> some of the stuff from the other studios at the time. But um, but yeah, the actual like uh, action scenes and stuff are, are are pretty well done. I I know that um, I think Kevin mentioned that Yamauchi was you know a veteran at at Toei on ninja stuff, and uh, uh, I haven't. I haven't seen this, but, you know, another uh, really good source of information on this film is uh, the website Vintage Ninja, which is run by uh, Keith Rainville, who's just an endless fount of information on old Japanese uh, ninja movies. But he talks about on on his site the fact that um, Yamauchi, a couple years prior to this, did a movie called Ninja Gari or Ninja Hunt which he talks about as being like one of the best like 60s ninja movies ever made and that it's really interesting apparently if you watch Ninja Gari up against Magic Serpent because they have really similar plots in that they're about, you know, a disposed um, you know, uh, heir to the throne who's trying to fight his way back, you know, using using ninjutsu, you know, and and restore you know, himself to, to power against these, these sort of despots and stuff. But, you know, it has none of the fantasy elements that are in Magic Serpent. And it's also, like, really grim and played really straight. And it's sort of amazing. You know, Rainville comments that he thinks it's really amazing that, you know, this was the same director who did this movie and then, you know, just, you know, two years later or so does Magic Serpent, right? It shows a real range. Um, in his his directing ability, so uh, yeah, you know, the remake of that also in '82. Yeah, yeah, they. Oh, yeah. I mean, they. You know, I think most of these ninja movies have been remade at some point. Yeah. So, um, looks like he remade it in '82. Uh, ninja Hunt. Oh, that is. Um, did he? Huh. No, I, I. Yeah, looking at his stuff, I mean, he's primarily a director of these period ninja films. So he, you know, he he didn't come into this as a kaiju guy or a fantasy guy or 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 anything like that. He came into this as a director of these kind of uh, old school ninja movies, um, and uh, you know that the those those sequences are are probably the best directed uh, out of any of them on here. So. Yeah, that comes as absolutely no surprise to me. Um, the the soundtrack is also great. You know, Toei uh, is is c- consistently pretty good about soundtracks, but uh, yeah, the the score is by uh, Toshiaki Tsushima, who did um, uh, a lot of stuff for for Toei, um, a lot of like Fukusaku um, movies. Um, the Return of Street Fighter. Uh, he also did Toho's movie Deathquake. Um, uh, yeah, I mean a very accomplished composer with uh, a lot of stuff. You know, um, uh, uh, Green Slime. At least the Japanese version of Green Slime, the, because the U.S. version had its own um, score. Uh, but uh, uh, so yeah, I mean he he it, it looks like I mean mostly Toei stuff. Um, uh, if I have a complaint about the Magic Serpent, it's that the second act uh, feels a little long in the tooth. Just it it kind of starts to get repetitive once he's um, 
you know, we see him, you know, uh, uh, kind of save uh, Tsunade, and then he, and then you know, there's the the the, the family um, that you know he saves when he's like kind of infiltrating the the town, um, and and so some of those relationships kind of get, uh, I don't know. There's a lot of similar stuff going on, <laughs> and and the dramatic storyline in in that middle and uh it, it kind of stretches it out a little bit um so that that's that's the only like big thing that i can level at it um i i mean uh but you know i mean if, if this movie lost i mean even like something like five minutes or so i mean it would really help the pacing in that middle section i don't know if i'm alone in, in feeling that way but uh i i do agree that like the the, the female character that's the, the the daughter of the family that uh, like basically she gets dropped and and like her little brother sticks around for for a while longer in the film but um uh it it, it did feel like there's a bit of redundancy there that that could have been either either expanded or reduced as a role um because uh, as it was it was a, a little clunky yeah. Yeah. Um, anyone else uh, feel that way, or have any 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 other kind of complaints that that you would bring up? No, I think that really is the only the only complaint because she that that character feels very samey. Um, but as you mentioned, like five or seven minutes of of trim time, and that would have been that would have been addressed and fixed. Um, I think overall the the other characters have a point and they um, they they don't wear out their welcome. But yeah, I mean, I think that's the only complaint that's probably pretty minor. And I would say, like again, some of the the wire work for the monster battles is is kind of clunky, but like it's also not without its charm for that reason. So I don't mind that as much. I, I think that you know I, the reason why I wanted to ask Kevin earlier about who worked on the effects is that you know for for Toei not being you know, veterans of this kind of stuff in the way that um, Toho or, or even Dae was at this point. You know, I think that both the the toad suit and the dragon suit um, look really good and that the fight choreography is actually quite good, especially considering the fact that both of those are are pretty big deviations from what you get as far as your kind of standard uh, kaiju, right? I mean, you know, the toad is, you know, looks like a toad, you know, crouched down there on, on all fours. And the dragon is your classic, like, Asiatic, you know, long, snake-like bodied uh, dragon, right? And, and yet there are obviously, you know, guys inside those suits, um, you know, and, and you don't see that kind of stuff, I think, you know, very often for a reason, right? I mean, usually when you get those kinds of classic sort of Asiatic dragons and tokosatsu they're, um, you know, puppets like uh, like Manda in uh, Atragon or, uh, you know, um, our n- nurse or Nars, however you say it, in Ultra 7, right? It, it's very seldom that you see an attempt to do that kind of dragon creature as a guy in a suit. And, uh, you know, but, you know, to their credit, I think that they they pull it off, so... Yeah, they they managed to also like just have a huge discrepancy in height between the toad costume and the dragon costume, which uh, 
is is those matters of scale are always a little bit difficult for uh, for Tokusatsu productions. Uh, is it? Uh, I mean, I someone might I might I might sound crazy, so someone help me out here. At a certain point, I seem to remember in the Western fandom, at least, the monsters were given like nicknames, like Frago or or, or something, or and Drago. It, it, it does, does it sound familiar to anyone? Okay, <laughs> I I don't doubt for a, a moment that that is the case. I seem to remember that kind of. I, I seem to remember that like around like the time when like to, uh, like toys of this were dropping. Um, oh. Which, which, uh, aside from the the ones you mentioned earlier, um, have have there been a lot of uh, like figures for these monsters? Not really. Um, Toy was, you know, the their TV series. They were uh, a little bit better about merchandising. Um, you know, like Akakage and mm. and Giant Robo, but. When you think about like their movie output, they didn't they didn't have a whole lot of um a whole lot of, of, of like figurines or anything that I'm aware of. And you know, recently, you know, that figure set comes to mind, but uh I haven't seen much more than that. Um well, that's kind of that's that's a little bit surprising, just considering that these days, I mean, so many figures of so many, uh, so much everything, <laughs> you know, happen all the time. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, this is one that I think is ripe for rediscovery. Um, you know, me and you, Kevin, we were talking to someone uh, at G Fest, um, and uh, you know. With, details of the conversation and identity of the person withdrawn but uh yeah it sounds like unfortunately the rights in the united states for this i don't know it, it sounds like they might there might be some kind of situation there i don't know who owns it at the moment um but uh it might be one of those that is just a little bit more complicated um which might explain why it hasn't been released because you, you would think something like this would be in like Arrow's wheelhouse or, or, uh, or something like that. But, um, yeah, I, I really hope someone can, can get this out on a nice Blu-ray out here in the States. Cause this is a movie that, you know, yeah, we can always, uh, hold on to our bootlegs, but you know, the, these should be available more widely. Yeah, I mean there is a there's a nice HD version of the Japanese uh, print out there now, so uh, it would be nice to to see that brought over to the states. I personally don't care if they're able to include the U.S. dub or not, but I know for a lot of people that would be uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, I just having the movie out in some form would be. Uh, um, you know, now would be a great time to to be able to do that if it's possible. So, whoever's listening that can uh, make that happen, you know, we uh, would we would like that. <laughs> I know. Uh, again, going back to Keith Rainville, he's talked about that he thinks you know this film is is one that you know people in both like the you know kaiju fandom and the ninja fandom 
need to see, but he he's also said that he thinks that that's one of the things that makes it in in some ways a little bit harder to for you know someone to potentially kind of market over here um you know because it is this sort of odd mashup of those two genres which again you might think would would heighten its appeal um you know but at the same time you know i i think even even something like you know even something like that you know you want you want some kind of hook that you know you're your more casual, you know, genre, Asian genre or exploitation film fan can kind of latch on to. I mean, I think about when Arrow released, you know, um, uh, what was it? You know, Wolf Cop or not, or whatever, the, um, that Sonny Chiba movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Wolf Guy. Yes, Wolf, Wolf Guy. Yeah. Wolf Guy, yeah, like Enraged by Canthrope. Yeah, like, you know, that's that's a weird mashup of things where it's like, you know, a, a Yakuza slash kind of cop movie with werewolf elements in it, but you can still kind of hang it on the fact that it's a Sunny Chiba film, right? Whereas, you know, we haven't really talked about any of, of the actors in this movie, um, you know, but I, I don't think any of them are particularly well known, again, outside of people who happen to be like really hardcore, you know, um, uh, you know, Jedi Gekke buffs right who, who watch a lot of this kind of stuff in which case like both of the leads both jiraiya and orochimaru you'll probably recognize because they've been in other films like the fall of eiko castle or castle of owls are the two that that come to mind right but again you know they're not exactly you know they're not sunny chiba so yeah i mean like watari hasn't been released stateside either so uh, that's that also deserves it um but yeah, in terms of like when I think about the cast of those two movies, there's a huge overlap in that Venn diagram. Yeah, uh, but this is a better movie than Wolf Guy is. <laughs> this that's that's true. <laughs> um, I like it is a better movie than Wolf Guy. I, I like Wolf Guy, but uh, yeah, this is <laughs> easily a better movie. Um. So, uh... There's actual shape-shifting in this. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, the, this, this is a, it's a really enjoyable movie. I, I, I encourage people to, to seek it out. Um, uh, like I said, I mean, there, there's the, the Retromedia disc, which I don't think it's in print anymore, but, uh, if not, you can probably find it cheap if, you're okay going gray market. I mean, there's uh, online resources uh, where you can find the film, um, uh, you know, streaming on websites or, um, uh, you know, bootleg DVDs that are, are of decent quality that you can get. But uh, yeah, let's let's do something to bring the Magic Serpent back uh, here in the states because. Um, you know, I'm all for double dipping uh, if if I'm you know replacing an old bootleg with like a really nice quality um, disc here. So, um, someone Arrow, SRS, whoever has the power, um, yeah, this is this is definitely high on my wish list. Um, so, uh, I mean, how many? Uh, how many, I guess, uh, 
floating, decapitated heads do you, we want to give this out of five? Not everyone at once. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I figure I can be biased, so I should probably go last. I'll go, I'll go first. Um, I, I do really like this movie. Um, I gave it a, a three and a half on my most recent watch, but it's, I mean, it, it's worthy of, I was like three and a half or four. It's somewhere in between there. Um, as I mentioned before, like it, it's a lot of fun. It offers a lot of things that you don't see in uh, many other giant monster films. And the final, you know, the, the last like 15 minutes are just a blast. So three and a half, highly recommended. I think more people should, should know of this movie and should watch it. Um, I'll go next. Uh, I, I'll, cause I'm, I'm right there with Matt. I give it a three and a half. Uh, to me, that means it's above average and it's something that I would revisit. Um, maybe not a super ton, but it's definitely worth watching, you know, and, and, and watching again every every few years um, and uh, yeah I, I I am uh, uh, definitely would campaign to get this a better um, like release here uh, it's it's kind of um, sliding back into obscurity after being easy to see for a little bit so um, it, it, you know it's becoming another one of those like under discussed gems and uh, uh, it, it should be more, more widely seen and definitely more widely available. Um, but I give it a three and a half. It's a really solid movie. Um, I would recommend it to both fans of ninja films and period films and kaiju films. So, um, you know, it, it ticks all three of those boxes. Uh, I would also give it, I, I would, I would go for the full sort of four floating ninja heads out of five. Um, so I, I, you know, my most recent rewatch, which was about a week ago, you know, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's a really fun film. Uh, it, it's short, uh, you know, it moves. I, I think, you know, um, you know, it moves at a, a, a brisk pace. Um, you know, there's, there's something that's always happening on the screen, whether it's ninja battles or kaiju battles or, you know, um, or sort of situational drama with the, the revelations about who is whose daughter or, you know, the, the family who uh, Jiraiya kind of falls in with at one point who tries to, to shelter them um, or shelter him, uh, you know. And it's, uh, and I really, I really appreciate this film for, you know, for being different. Uh, there are so many, you know, kaiju movies that are set in the 20th century and, uh, you know, uh, 21st century where it's monsters, you know, smashing buildings, battling tanks and jets and, and that kind of stuff. And obviously, you know, that's, that's the, um, that's the template that's, you know, what we all love, but I do really also appreciate getting to see, uh, something different, um, like a, a kaiju period piece. And, and there aren't a lot of those. You have this movie, you have the Daimajin films, you have Holgasari, you have Whale God, right? And um, yeah, those, I, I, those... I would love to see more period yeah. monster movies. I mean, so, I, I, I think even something like a Western period monster movie, I mean, not Western as in, you know, 
cowboys and stuff. Although that could be cool too. But uh, you know, something like in the Victorian era or something. I don't know. When it, and it seems like you know we do get things like that sometimes. Um, even even what was the chi- the one that took place in China, the Great Wall? It's usually some bullshit like that. <laughs> but yeah, we we need to normalize making good period monster movies. Yeah, exactly. So and, and you know, so I I definitely really appreciate the movie, the movie for that and and being different. And yeah, I wish there was I wish there was more of this kind of stuff. You know, I wish that you know even you know even uh, to get like an an anime you know, sort of, that was, you know, which, which is besides Naruto, um, where it was, you know, kind of, you know, centered around those kinds of ideas, I think would be, would be a lot of fun. So yeah, four, four out of five. From- All right, Kevin, wrap us up. So, um, I'll say with the caveat that, you know, I'm, I'm not a normal person and I, I recognize as, as I acknowledged before that there are, you know, imperfections within the scope of this film. And I've, tried to show it to other people, you know, like my wife loves Star Wars and she loves Naruto. And I've kind of showed this to her several times and she's just like, eh, okay. And like, but, 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 um, but I just, I love this movie. It's so much fun. Uh, this, the unrelenting action, the over the top bombast, like even in the ninja genre, you don't get anything that's quite this crazy, uh, in done in done in live action. Um, and that's uh, just uh, pushes those dopamine buttons in my brain. And I, I just have a great big grin on my face the whole time uh, watching this uh, in ways that like even, you know, as, as heretical as this might be, some of the Godzilla movies don't do that for me. So um, I, you know, in, in my book, I gave this a five out of five and I'm, I'll just keep saying, you know, five out of five scrolls that you thought were scrolls but they're actually snakes <laughs> uh yeah no this, this is a good movie so um uh I, yeah i recommend people check it out um oh uh, kevin you know what we didn't mention when we were talking about g-fest is uh uh you got to play primal rage 2 yeah the the game <laughs> room was uh was really uh was really rocking this year. I, it was, I think that was the yeah. best that they've ever had it. And and uh, you know, Gigabash and um, Dawn of the Monsters had had setups for for their games that have just. Uh, I mean, Dawn of the Monsters just came out. I don't think Gigabash is out yet. Um, so uh, the game room was, you know, yeah. They, they they well, they seem to have um, partnered with uh, Galloping Ghost, which is a pretty famous Chicago arcade who have tons of rare games including a lot of kaiju games so it seems like they partnered with them and they brought over all their like kind of monster games so there were godzilla games and um uh, the one like giant monster counterattack or whatever and then uh there were the the godzilla 98 and the the recent godzilla pinball machines and then they had primal rage one and two and if you're thinking primal rage two well first of all you might be thinking what the hell is primal rage um, for us 90s kids, that was basically like Mortal Kombat with dinosaurs, and it was awesome. Um, Primal Rage 2 never came out. It was like 90-some percent completed, and then it just never came out. So uh, from what I understand, Galloping Ghost has like the only functional Primal Rage 2 unit in existence. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, Kevin played... I played it the day after you, Kevin. So we both played Primal Rage 2... Um, which was pretty interesting. I, I'm, 
I was a little confused because, like, you select your character and they're, like, these humans with, like, <laughs> armor and weapons. And I guess I guess you have to figure out how to transform into the dinosaur. So I wasn't, I wasn't super, like... The, the uh, controls weren't written on the uh, on the cabinet like you usually get with a fighting game at, at the arcade, so you really had to experiment to figure it out on your own. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I wasn't a fan of that aspect. Like, let me play as a damn dinosaur, okay? Like, that's why I'm <laughs> playing this and not Mortal Kombat. I want to be a dinosaur. That's why I'm not upset it never came out is because of, like, I don't know why they went... That was a weird... That's a strange design decision to make it more about the people that can you can briefly transform into the into the apes or into the dinosaurs. That's just such a bizarre... Well, you, you can also select the, the monster characters, which also made it a little confusing. There's two different select screens there, so... Is that what's uh, going on? I, I didn't know what was going on. I, I was just like, this is the only v- copy of this game. I might as well play it just to, you know, then I can say I played it. <laughs> yeah, pocket <laughs> list. Did you play, uh, play Gigabash? Uh, I didn't. I didn't play that, and I I didn't play Dawn of the. I wanted to give. I I don't play video games, but I I was interested in playing Dawn of the Monsters. You know, we know Alex, who, you know, kind of uh, uh, developed it. But I, it, there were always people playing it. Like I I could not just walk up and play it. Uh, Gigabash, I didn't pay much attention to, so I I I don't know. I didn't really make an attempt, but I saw people. I did see a lot of people playing it. Yeah, I mean it. It looks like fun when it's available. I'm gonna try to uh, scoop it up, but um, uh, you know, Pr- Primal Rage two and, and those like Ultraman games, the things that you won't have easy access to later. That's kind of what got yeah, prior. Yeah, they uh, they had the uh, the Godzilla two D fighting game from the nineties. Um, the one that ended up on Turbo Graphics. They had like the arcade machine for that. Um, that's some, sweet yeah some ultraman games like uh, weirdly enough like the the game room was like a, a kind of unsung highlight this year like it's the most i've spent in there in i don't even know how long probably since i was like going to these shows as a kid you know so uh so yeah no that that was a, a cool thing and I, <laughs> I figured we should bring that up because we uh forgot that actually <laughs> reminded me of uh a game, a game bit of news because they are putting out on Nintendo Switch uh, an Ultraman Monster Ranger title in the U.S. Like I, I knew it was coming out in Japan. It actually is getting an official Western release too, which I thought was pretty interesting. Okay, I don't know what that means, but cool. Monster Rancher was a big deal. In oh, the- Monster Rancher. Okay, no. Monster okay, Rancher. I. Uh, okay, I. Okay, yeah. I. 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 I didn't know. What, I thought he said something else. I. I I'm. I. The Monster Rancher are that is a brand I am aware exists. But anyway, no, that's 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 interesting. Uh they're really pushing Ultraman here. Um uh, all right. Well I, I think that's you didn't talk about Artist Alley, but maybe that's a can of worms. Yeah, I mean uh, Artist Alley, I all I'll say is a lot of a lot of social media hubbub was Caused over the you know the rule that you know oh we don't want you selling multiples of any Toho monsters and uh, I saw a lot of artists selling plenty of their own original stuff but uh, there were also some artists that I definitely saw kind of working around those rules a little bit so I and and also there were artists that were less. Uh, uh, 
I guess, mindful of trying to follow that rule or at least looking like they're following that rule. But, you know, no one was really regulating it. I mean, I, I think someone could just pull up with a whole stacks of stuff and no one would... I, I don't think any anything would happen. That's just me, so... that That was my impression as well. Yeah, so, I mean... Like most kerfuffles that happen on social media, it wound up to be a whole lot of nothing. That's, you know, that's my opinion of it. And, uh, um, you know, combining it with the dealer's room, uh, I mean, there were more artists than I was expecting, um, but I don't know if there were less dealers or what. You know, I, I feel like they, I don't know, I feel like, I feel like you, depending on how many artists sign up for it i mean if if it's just going to be the same amount you know they might not have any incentive to you know keep it outside the dealer's room you know so i mean but if a ton of artists want to go do it you know maybe they would bring back another room at some point uh you know there, there's internal politics there also but you know i i i i don't know like i like i said i i think it that whole situation seemed like a whole lot of nothing at the end of the day Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, yeah. So, well, uh, yeah. I mean, we'll we'll see uh, how next year pans out. You know, it, it really didn't seem as bad as people were were making it this time. Um. All right. I. I mean, I think I think that's it. I mean, we we talked about all kinds of stuff. This has been a pretty action packed and productive podcast. So you know, Kevin, thank you as always uh, for for coming on and. Uh, special thanks to Justin for coming on and, and bringing uh, bringing all that um, uh, history with 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 them and giving us a, a nice a nice lesson in in uh, Japanese. I don't know. I guess you can say Jiraiya is more like you said. I mean, since it's from a like a novel, I guess you could say Jiraiya is more of a pop culture character. But thank you for the history lesson. Yeah, no problem. Happy to do it. Always happy to to come back. I think you know this. That really, um, I mean, as as you said, you know that this is this is one of the things about the this kind of stuff that I I really get into. You know, um, I guess you know I, I mentioned my work at AIPT earlier, but also I mean you know people who read uh, John Lemay's book, you know, may have seen a couple of the essays that I've written for him at this point, um, in both his Kong Unmade book, which is now out in a new, uh, two volume edition. And then also, uh, his, uh, Jaws Unmade book. And I, I get, um, quoted in his, his second Cowboys and Dinosaurs book, you know, but in all of those cases, it's like, you know, I'm tracking down the literary source material for a lot of these kinds of films. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, do. I mean, Stuff like this is, I mean, it, it gets into pretty dense, like, backstory and history. So, you know, having someone that is fluent in that information is, is helpful. Um, and speaking of Kong Unmade, vol, uh, uh, second edition, both volumes are out now. Uh, thank you for reminding me to plug that, because I edited both versions of that uh, and did complete rehauls on a lot of chapters. I have a brand new, well, not brand new if you have the fanzine, but up, but it is updated. Um, uh, a, a piece about the Spider Pit 
sequence um, in the first volume. Um, but yeah, both volumes, I I spend a lot of time uh, reworking, and and yeah, Justin has a, a piece in there too. So um, which uh, is also updated. Yep. For this new edition, yep. so even even more King Kong prose work. Yep. Yeah. So Kong Unmade Second Edition Volumes One and Two. Uh, Check those out if you haven't. Um, I guarantee you it's an upgrade from the first edition if you're thinking about, you know, oh, I don't want to double dip. So, um, yes, quick plug for that. Um, all right, guys. Well, I, I guess we can head out of here. Um, uh, as always, thank you, and thank you to the listeners. And, yeah, we'll, uh, uh, we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Uh, probably, um, we have some stuff we'll put out in the meantime, but, uh, Matt is another, has another, he has to take another break. So, uh, we'll probably start recording more next month, but, uh, we will have some episodes dropping in the meantime. Um, all right. Well, good night, everybody. Bye. Adios. Bye. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.